There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed in substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. And then there was one point where I heard uh, a growl. Some UFOs when we were there. I want to know the truth. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Dr. JJ and Desiree Hurtock talking publicly about Anessa's interesting DNA discoveries that were found in meteorites that had landed in Australia and Antarctica. We're also going to be talking with Michael Clean and his guest, Richard Weiss, Suzanne Taylor's segment Outside the Box. Not to mention Sam Ronto and Des Whiston are going to be talking about all sorts of things from the paranormal to UFOs. We'll be right back. We're starting off with Dr. JJ and Desiree Hurtock right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. With us right now is Dr. J.J. Hurtock and his wife, Desiree Hurtock, social scientist, futurist, and the founders of the Academy for Future Science. I want to welcome you both to the show and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. John, thank you so much for having Desiree and I on as your guest speakers. As you know, we're both social scientists. Uh, We are both working as futurists, and we both have backgrounds in remote viewing and remote sensing. We've had an opportunity to work with some of the finest uh, researchers behind the scenes for more than 35 years, and currently we're doing research out of the United Nations worldwide in terms of putting together the puzzles of what seems to be a whole new evolutionary pattern that we as humans are connected with. But of course what we're talking about uh, right now is the interest that NASA has had in understanding what was discovered inside the meteorites that were found in Antarctica and more recent meteorites that were recently landed, so to speak, since the 60s in Australia. And when they delved into the middle of these meteorites, what they found were these interesting geometries that are very similar to what we have in our DNA. Because you're speaking of the Murchison meteorite material and find, and we're also looking at earlier evidences In 1984, they came from the area of uh, Antarctica, which, of course, was released to the press with Bill Clinton saying this could change the whole evolutionary understanding of planetary evolution. So we have had the chance to look more carefully at the new meteorite information. And uh, Desiree, why don't you take it from the standpoint of a recent news conference we gave internationally on the NASA evidence and how this fits into a much larger question of how what we will call a higher evolutionary process is at hand. Right, so what was found in there were the exact same what's called 
pyrimidines as what we find in our DNA, connected with adenine and guanine. And mm-hmm. when you find these things, you realize that what we have inside of us that creates ongoing life, the very basis of our life is actually also out there in space. And this was the NASA finding that they announced. They actually had found it a while ago, but it was only in August of this year, 2011, that Michael Callahan released the confirmation that the evidence of this geometry. So he's speaking of August of 2011 when the Goddard Space Flight scientist Michael Callahan stated that we had solid evidence that there were building blocks of DNA to be found in meteorites from space. This is of course of great interest to us because as early as 1973 I had published this book called The Book of Knowledge Keys of Enoch where I detail another evolutionary scenario regarding the the Martian frontier and also the use of meteorite material for unfolding is where the inner code of life that connects us with all living things. So, uh, Desiree? So, say, it's quite an amazing thing to find, you know, building blocks DNA on an asteroid from outer space. That changes the entire the view of everything, changes the whole picture. Exactly. So it's showing that the way we were formed, and this is what scientists are now starting to look at when they find planets in outer space that maybe have the possibility of life because there's water on them or they become blue, they're blue planets like ours, that you know perhaps we are uh, getting these codes that created life on this planet not from some happenstance here on planet Earth, but from something that really was seeded here from outer space. That's a very interesting concept, and it's been around now more and more, and scientists are starting to talk about it, that the life maybe came here from asteroids or meteorites, and that um, maybe it also was there on Mars. This is an interesting thing we'll bring up probably shortly in your program, mm. of the exciting possibilities of life on Mars. Well, this could mean there's life similar to us everywhere in the galaxy, too, technically, couldn't it? I mean, because we don't know where the asteroid came from. Exactly. So the whole point is that not only would there be microbial life in outer space, but the same formation that created within us, the adenine and the guanine, which I actually have to say are actually purines. These are the ones that were found in the meteorites were purines, uh, are also found perhaps in other alien type of intelligences. And, you know, we have them and so do pigs and so do fish. So it could be variations of us. It doesn't have to be all Adamic species, as we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. It means that there's a larger definition of life, that we are cosmoplanetary humans, and there are certain triggering mechanisms that connect us with the building blocks of intelligence. Not only that, but as we are working now with a whole new space development process of beginning to see ourselves going in terms of a human extraterrestrial imperative to nearby planets, we need to know more about the conditions so that we can build the appropriate habitat for the human race. And again, we are very close, I believe, to having officially, after many, many years of official denial, a statement by NASA saying that we have found the uh, fossilized evidence, that is to say microfossil evidences of some form of evolutionary process at work. We almost got to wonder if they've actually already 
found it too and they just have been completely silent about it which is not too unheard of yeah well what we're excited about right now uh, as many of you know from the listeners that in november 26 of 2011 that the mars science laboratory was launched and it has a really large rover called curiosity the name was given by a, a young student which i thought was a great name and thank goodness that she came up with that and hopefully there it's going to land around the beginning of august and then start doing the first real research of looking for microbe or microbial life, either past, probably mostly present, active microbial life on Mars. So this is the next opportunity, we think, for NASA to come forward. And as you said, they probably had many opportunities in the past and they haven't. But 2012, around, we'll say August, it'll take a while to do the research and to get the scientists together. So maybe, you know, close to the end of 2012, they might finally come up with the statement saying, yes, microbial life exists also on other planets. I mean, it's leading up to it. We, we think this is kind of a slow release process of, uh, you know, something they already know about and they're going to let us know about as soon as they're willing to. Well, there's so much evidence that points there's something out there, like uh, our friend Susan Taylor, the crop circles. My gosh, you know, where are these crop circles coming from? They're just not magically appearing. There's got to be some sort of life form. Exactly, and if you look at the crop circles, looking at the complexity that has developed from the so-called circles to pentagonal forms interconnected with concentric patterns to hexagonal patterns to octahedral to dodecahedral, et cetera, et cetera, we see that there is what I believe to be a communication process of symbols that are connecting us not only with the megalithic sites of Mother Earth throughout the world, but also with what I came to publish in 1973 through some remarkable experiences I had, namely the so-called pyramidal formations of the Lazium Quad Triangle on the Martian surface, showing three-sided and four-sided as well as five-sided pyramidal geometries all connecting uh, different phases of some type of evolution mechanism, whether we can attribute it to a non-human source or simply uh, uh, some type of extraterrestrial phenomena. The point is that we are at a stage of some fantastic breakthroughs in the chapter of human life, discovering that we're not alone in the universe, and we need really a new biological textbook. We need really a, a whole new approach to what I call a consciousness physics that would put together the problems that we've had with intentional science that has denied a uh, process of teleportation, materializations, and rematerializations that have been associated with these so-called uh, other geometric realities. So we're trying to put together a larger blueprint of evolution, connecting all of the unknown physical sciences, the social sciences, the cycle of spiritual symbolism, going all the way up to a whole new cosmology of consciousness. Right, so it all seems to be interrelated, and I think that's what's so exciting. People are starting to see this. You know, what exists in the universe, you know, may be just a macrocosm of what we're all about. Uh, people have looked at even the Hubble telescope and the way the universe is, is extending and everything like that that they see, and then you look at the neuron patterns of the brain. And they seem to be almost identical. You can actually hold pictures up, and some people have done that, and say, hey, you know, the neuron products of the brain are almost like the universe. So what, you know, where is this? Where is this going, and where is this taking us? And it's taking us into, I think, a real understanding that we are all interconnected. That's the real exciting thing. The geometries within us are in space. Uh, the realities of uh, communication through crop circles is showing us the sacred geometry of all nature. So we're seeing from the microbiological levels, the things that we're now finding, 
finding in the universe to the macroevolutionary levels, we're going to put together very, very soon what I believe to be a whole new textbook of life. Those of the listeners who are acquainted with the materials that Desirena put together recognize that some of the scientific uh, models that we published in the early 70s are coming true with respect to finding in remote areas of the world, such as under the oceanic waters of Japan and Taiwan, certain uh, pyramidal platforms and geometries as specifically indicated in one of the chapters or keys of the Book of Knowledge. So a lot of things that have been up for grabs are coming closer into a type of uh, harmonic of putting the biological building blocks together. Yeah, they're just going to have to rewrite all the books, I believe. Things are starting to change so much that from ages ago, it's just completely different now. They're going to have to rewrite history. Yeah, exactly. And actually, part of our work has been a book that Dr. Hitchak wrote back in the 70s called The Keys of Enoch. And the whole idea was that we were going to have to rewrite history, and we've been doing it on the levels from archaeology, as uh, we've been talking about from certain understanding of how pyramids exist around the world and also perhaps on Mars. And also in terms of astronomy, you know, why is Orion so important in these ancient cultures? Is that a source of intelligence? Do they come and give us information that relate to who we are? I mean, the Egyptians seem to honor those people from Orion, and so did the Mayans. I mean, We're talking about specific megalithic site orientation, right. very specific uh, structures that were built in different parts of the world, indicating that at one time there was a class or some type of civilization that could know the relationships of our planet in relationship to other planetary dimensions. And what's really interesting is if you just want to talk about sacred geometry, if you look at Orion, most people are familiar with it, so you have three stars in the center, but then you have kind of a pyramid coming down and a pyramid going up. I mean, you know, is this just unique? Uh, most people would say it's just happenstance, but maybe it's not so happenstance. Maybe we're living in kind of a cosmic matrix, and the universe is just unfolding in terms of geometries, and we're part of that, and we carry information within us that's able to communicate and, you know, connect together. I think the idea of a matrix, many people, just in terms of geometry, know that oftentimes their house number matches or has similarities to their telephone number, has similarities to the numbers on their cars, that these numbers keep coming up in people's lives. This is something to, you know, this is part of the whole mathematics of the universe that's in relationship to them. It's a lot bigger picture than people think what it is. Yeah, and they need to start realizing it. I mean, people are talking about, I think, you know, John, a holographic universe. That is that even our universe came out of another universe. And uh, on our website, which is called futurehistory.org, is the notion that they started to look that when they were looking at the whole cosmos of the universe, they saw certain anomalies, and they think that could be our connection to other universes. So we're going on into parallel universes, which means it's not all chaos. But just right, you've used the word holographic from Dr. Carl Priebrem and others. I think a lot of uh, physical scientists would, would disagree with you. They would rather accept that this is a multiverse that is far more complex than just a holographic pattern. I mean, that's a nice uh, buzzword when it comes to uh, the operations of how the mind may see itself in terms of parallel realities. But we're working with a far more complex pattern that Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher and others have looked at in terms of the complexity of how we are working not with one, but various complex evolutionary patterns. In fact, I could date this in a little different way. We're looking at that our physical universe doesn't exist independent of the thoughts of each individual, but rather it's a construct that comes out of many different combinations, many different movements of an indefinite number of universes. But in addition to that, I think this is part of uh, this indefinite number of universes really is starting to open us up to understanding who we are. And um, not to get too personal, but... 
people always like to know, well, how does this relate to me? It seems to be talking only about space and things that I don't really relate to. But in a sense, um, you know, you may be operating in other universes or have multiple possibilities as well. I mean, scientists are telling us that that everyone has multiple possibilities, and we kind of choose those possibilities. And if you do negative thinking, I'm shifting this a little bit maybe for the audience Uh so that they can (laughs) understand this, that if if you do negative thinking, you're, you're attracting and you're pulling in from those realities that are bringing you into this downward spiral. If you simply change your way of thinking, you're starting to use quantum physics, literally, to choose different possibilities and make them part of who you are. So all of this is interrelated. It actually, what we're talking about is not just science, it's actually also working within you and being a part of, of everyone's day-to-day operations. So we're looking at a new blueprint here, and this is why Desiree and I are looking at this from different perspectives and different directions of having to have done the field work of going to see a crop circle phenomena in other parts of the world, to looking at the archaeological zones throughout the world to see if there's really a, a whole different pattern that connects these different and diverse cultural centers with a higher blueprint of evolution. Mm-hmm. Three, to gather information from people such as the Aboriginal people and uh, natives of various cultures of contact with the signs and the symbols that they've seen. Four, to build a cosmic language through these symbols and sort of to demythologize these symbols have been too parochial in the past if they've been centered around only one part of the world and to see a universal language evolve. And five, to really put together through our Academy for Future Science a common through which a physicist, uh, mathematicians, musicians, uh, anthropologists, sociologists can all converge and say that we have to build this roadmap together. So we're suggesting that the ordinary language vehicle is not sufficient. It's too black and white. It's too limited. And therefore, we have to go to a different type of language of experience. And this comes through pictures and uh, the use of graphic, particularly through fractal geometries, which is able to enhance consciousness and open up the human mind to vast areas of knowledge that hitherto would not be possible. You know, I know Dr. Jack just said he doesn't, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions on the holographic universe, but I know, John, you're you're right there near Fermilab, aren't you? Right, uh, yes. And there's uh, a guy named Craig Hogan who has been one of the greatest purporters. He's right there at Fermi on the fact of a holographic universe. And what that would mean to people is that literally every universe is part of every other universe and that the whole system is interconnected. And, you know, this is so important for people to start understanding that, you know, not only is it maybe mathematically connected, but there's a slight possibility, and this is coming out in some of the newest science, is that it's consciously interconnected, which means that we can know things uh, such as through remote viewing, which has been some of our work, that's not only just on this planet, but we could actually know things through remote viewing that exist in the universe because it's all you know, kind of one, that there's not a real separation. That's an now, amazing concept. I think this concept. is really exciting for people to just, you know, be able to spread their consciousness to know it's greater than me sitting here at a table or in the car listening to a radio, that, you know, we actually have a consciousness that spreads out throughout the universe. So let's look at specifics now. You're obviously entertaining our area of information. What specific work would you like us to talk about since we've painted this? Well, actually, areas? after going through... Uh, your bios and seeing everything you're in, I don't even know what to ask you. You cover so much stuff. We'll have to have you on numerous times. I mean, the floor well, is let yours. Let me give you some ideas <laughs> here. Desiree and I have had an opportunity.
opportunity to do music sound testing in Egypt and the pyramids in Mexico and the pyramids in China and Japan, where we were just returning from. And we found that there seems to be a musical sound structure that is connected with many of these ancient megalithic centers, pyramidal temples, and strange uh, areas of ancient initiation. And I was going to say, talking about um, geometry, you know, many people know about the pyramids of Egypt and they know about the pyramids of the Mayans in Yucatan, maybe Mexico City. Right. But few people know that there's also pyramids in um, China and others in Japan, and there's even pyramids in Peru and connected with Bolivia as well. So, you know, that there's the geometry, kind of a, I would call it a sacred geometry, that exists pretty much in every major culture, or at least some sort of symbology that connects with this basic geometry of life, the pyramid, and evolves from there, as we see in the crop circles, and we do um, appreciate your work with Suzanne Taylor, What's on Earth, I believe it's called her, her video. She's done a great job with bringing out uh, the sacred geometry of life that exists. Where do these crop circles come from? Where do the pyramids come from? These have to be questions people ask. Many people, of course, just think it evolved through their culture and because it pointed to the heavens, they thought it was interesting. But when you start looking at really the geometry and the alignments with stars and other constructs behind it, you realize there might have been a greater overarching uh, information that was prevalent in ancient culture and ancient society. And what's exciting to us. And so what we have done is we've, we've been able to measure uh, with very sophisticated computer programs the sound signal, and we put together a large range of um, recordings that we're going to make available now along with film material that was recorded in the 1970s when we did search tests in Egypt. Quite unique sound frequencies. And the bottom line is inside the Great Pyramid, for example, we discovered that each chamber of the Great Pyramid itself is reflective of certain tonal qualities of Human, the human body. The Great Pyramid is the human body in stone, showing certain vibratory processes and revealing a soundscape and a, a mathematical precision, and a musical precision that would be very, very hard to create without the precise angles and the arrangements of these rooms as sound chambers. I've actually heard project. that before. They're finding more and more about the pyramids. I mean, they're just truly amazing. That one about them being a power generator, too, is one I've, I'm a little bit intrigued about. Exactly. This is the work of Christopher Dunn and others, but what we discovered in the use of our ground penetrating radar was that there was a whole labyrinthian structure of water systems under the Giza Plateau. These water systems could be converted into batteries as a source of power that would explain how the Egyptians or proto-Egyptian civilization could use certain light uh, dynamics to create, as it were, the details on the walls and to do the precise uh, structure and in what we would call civil engineering over vast distances underground that could not be possible possibly done, you know, even with solar reflectors as we think of them. So, And if you go up into the ascending chamber of the Great Pyramid, some of your listeners have probably been there, there's actually these little cut-out squares on each side, and whatever was there is gone now. But, you know, it very easily could have been used for some sort of kind of science uh, of ancient times. Uh, if you look at the light, there's a, a interesting, looks like a light formation in the Dendera Temple, and Eric Van Doniken has taken that very image that's on the wall of the Sendera Temple and made a light bulb with it. You're talking about German scientists working with Doniken. Doniken is an anthropologist, a novelist, who's been able to do wonderful work in bringing together leading researchers. But the actual work that was first exhibited in the year 2000 in Vienna was the work of two independent engineers who came together, realizing that there was something more to the structures that we find on the sides of the Dendera Temple. 
And, you know, if you look underneath the ground, they put mirrors, they've done everything. There's, there's no evidence for how the ancients could have painted such beautiful structures in the walls without light. I, we were actually on the first team to discover what uh, Hawass had called, or Zahi Hawass, the Antiquities Department head there at that time, called the Tomb of Osiris. Mm-hmm. And it was 30 meters down or about 100 feet. Now, you know, there's no evidence for smudge and smoke for people, you know, going that far down. That's what I was just going to say. There's no sign of torches burning there at all is what I heard. No, and they've actually tried to figure out how to put lights to bring, you know, like uh, with mirrors, I should say, mirrors to bring in the light, the natural sunlight. Haven't been able to do that. They must have had some sort of maybe simple chemical battery structure. We know of them today, but we haven't developed them extensively to be able to do this. You really need water. They had water. Salt water. Uh, batteries, that's what he's referring to. Is that the Baghdad battery, isn't it? They called that one from there, I believe. Well, this was scaled up. But the, uh, the Baghdad uh, battery, which was, of course, uh, one of the key finds of the 20th century, uh-huh. shows that it could be done even by putting vinegar or urine into a, a, a receptacle, and uh, the reactions could be used very easily for a energy production. We're talking about large uh, structures, massive structures that would be able to uh, house chemical solutions or salt water, which in turn then was used as a type of uh, battery source, not only for structures at Giza, but also along the Nile, where we have massive underground structures that we have detected with um, the use of ground-penetrating radar. Now, Fawi Hawass took advantage of our situation in 1997 when we requested information for the archaeological digging permission that we would need to go down further into the Osiris tomb area. He took this upon himself to continue the, the research, which then he took credit for in February of 1999 when he gave that Worldwide Fox special. He mentioned at that time that there was a group that had preceded him, and he was making an indirect reference to our group that was there in 1997 that actually did find the tomb. And we have pictures that we have published with uh, Amon Rizzi, a Swiss writer, and Rico Paganini, another Swiss writer. We were the first to do the actual film documentation underground, which is how I would not allow to be published. So now that he's out of power, we believe that a lot of researchers can go back to Egypt and continue the quest to look at the real story of what is there beneath the Giza Plateau and that extends along the Nile up into Upper Egypt in terms of complex floor patterns that were part of various uh, testings that were done in different periods of history. Well, what's very clear is that underneath the Great Pyramid, near the grotto, or even in the grotto, there was once water. People have looked at the calcium deposits on the sides underneath mm-hmm. there, the grotto. There was water. So, and most of the pyramids, even the Red Pyramid and the Bent Pyramid, which was further down south from, not too far from Giza, and the Great Pyramid, also had water in the vicinity and underneath it. So water must have been used as some of this energy technology. It doesn't All take right. much in addition to that, maybe some chemicals, uh, you know, to create certain types of, some people are even talking about plasma scenarios. So so what does this mean, Desiree? <laughs> what it means, it means that we are uncovering the evidence that there was a much earlier strata of Egyptian civilization or proto-Egyptian uh, society that was able to communicate with the gods of a, a astrophysics and mathematics of showing relationships between Mother Earth and the stars, particularly the belt of Orion, and other bodies on such a level of, shall we say, 
calculation that it would take oh, 30 some Einsteins one after another to do the calculations, plus a civilization that was able to use water hydraulics, pneumatic systems for underground structures that were uh, spread along the Nile, indicating what we will call the different evolutionary stages of the human race that were modeled in stone uh, geometries or structures. Now, along with this has come the finding of a, an ancient script pattern that seems to fit into some of the crop circles in terms of what is reappearing in the uh, countryside and in fields of Europe, South America, and Asia, suggesting that the great architects are returning to the scene of the experiment. This uh, would have, obviously, a tremendous sociological impact on the human race if the human race could discover that its ancestors in some way did have some bits and pieces of a mathematical pattern behind it, the mythology that the ancient uh, instructors or the great architects gave us the whole story of our life in these geometric patterns, housed them in ceremonial centers and megalithic centers, and allowed our human evolutionary process to continue for thousands of years until we were bright enough to connect the dots and put the pieces together. What's really interesting on our YouTube channel, which uh, your listeners can uh, find under the Academy uh, 24 YouTube channel, we have a, a video we just put up, which is the Japanese in the 1970s, actually 78, tried to reconstruct the Great Pyramid based on using primitive tools. And they actually, uh, you know, tried to cut it with uh, stone chisels and that. They tried to put it across the barge, uh, you know, with a, with the old boats and stuff like that. They ended up using a steamboat. They had a. They tried the ramp thing, and they ended up actually even using a helicopter at a certain point. They only made it literally nine block tall, which is nothing compared to almost 200 blocks of the Great Pyramid. And I mean, you're talking about blocks at point higher in terms of step function. Right. Well, plus the We're placement, talking about too. one of the largest features of the ancient world. Not more than nine blocks, but you talked about nine levels. Yeah, so it was about 60 feet tall, very, very small. And they just couldn't do it. They couldn't, they actually had the permission, they had the time, they had the money. It was Nippon Corporation in Japan in 1978. You can see it on the online, on the YouTube. And they were not able to, uh, to construct that. So the construction must have come from some sort of, of higher technology. Some people have looked at at least trying to get the two to three ton blocks across the sand, and they figured out how to do it on rollers. But cutting it, putting it up, all this stuff is, and with the little channels inside, like the star shafts, or what people call the air shaft, right. I mean, it's almost impossible to do that. I mean, even today, we would literally have trouble doing all the intricate rooms inside the Great Pyramid. I saw an interview where they were talking to a master stonemason, and he says he couldn't duplicate what they did with today's tools. You know, it makes you wonder how in heaven's name they did it. Well, they were using unlimited directed current from the Earth's electricity charged by telluric currents. They were using other sources. We found back in the early 70s evidences of radioactive materials in an area close to the pyramids of Giza, which were analyzed privately by NASA scientists, and they had uh, big question marks about the ancient Egyptians could uh, manufacture something that would have high levels of radioactivity back after thousands of years in the 1970s. French and German, uh, as well as Japanese Egyptologists, also found trace elements confirming what we found privately in terms of radioactive materials. So obviously, the Egyptians were, or their architectural teachers were working with a vast variety of sources that uh, really go beyond the mythological uh, dimensions of classical Egyptology, which 
position these people simply as large groups of people pushing blocks into position and right. these huge massive structures that don't seem to serve any purpose except being in penal centers for the pharaohs. So we're at a process of rewriting history literally as we talk today and we're very excited and we ask our viewers and listeners to forgive us if we seem a bit impetuous in matching points and dots, but we're really connecting the dots from Asia, Africa to the Near East, showing us that we have come from a much earlier cycle of evolutionary testing, and we're just about to rediscover that we are still connected with the greater architects of the universe. Like you were saying earlier about the pyramids, I've been seeing that they're finding more and more everywhere. You know, they clear forest and they find hidden pyramids. They're small ones, big ones. They're finding them underwater. They're just everywhere. You know, they've got to mean something. You know, for some reason, everybody in the world built pyramids. Well, how were they interconnected back in those days? Exactly. And, you know, people think, okay, especially people from the Midwest, very important. Uh, they all think that the Mexicans, or the ancient Mesoamericans, I should say, built the pyramids, but they don't realize that in southern Illinois, which is just across the river from St. Louis, right. you have the Cahokia Mound, and we've been there many times, and it's really one of the largest pyramids, of course, in the North American continent, not not as large as some of those in Mexico, but um, they feel that there was an interconnection between the Aztec culture, or at least the ancestors of the Aztec, and what you find in Cahokia. And you also have, like, almost a type of uh, woodhenge, which, if you know, it's like Stonehenge, but with wooden markers. That's there. It's several mounds. There's one large one, also smaller ones. And we're also interested in the new findings connected with Bosnia. Everyone remembers Bosnia from past uh, war situation, but now that things have calmed down, there's at least one um, uh, terraform type of mountain there that looks very much like a pyramid, and there might be as much as three to five pyramids in that cluster. And people are doing research and also invited to go there um, and team up with the research scientists to investigate uh, what's going on in Bosnia and, and the Bosnian pyramids. They've not just found the pyramids, but they found some artifacts. They found like a little bit of a stone road around it. So it's not just this, you know, structure, the shape. Uh, for those who are interested, we put uh, our research on sacred geometry and consciousness development into a book called The Overself Awakening, which is now available through the Academy for Future Science. And for those who are interested, this book is very, very uh, well illustrated with uh, over uh, 150 plates. I call them cosmograms or three-dimensional and multi-dimensional geometries. They can go to the website, org and look up how all of these geometric possibilities fit together in terms of different evolutionary stages of awakening. We'll put all your links to in our guest bio page, because so, we're saying too many guests aren't going to remember those, so we'll put it on the guest bio page, all your links to everything you have. Getting back to that, the Bosnia, isn't that pyramid, did I hear that they say it's like one, one of the biggest ones ever found or something too? Yes, yes, it's much larger than the Giza plateau area and would result in the rewriting of European history if confirmed. Again, I've heard aspects both pro and con regarding the uh, terraforming of this mountain area, but there appears to be a labyrinthian system that's quite extensive that does connect with pyramidal uh, units, housing units that uh, resemble other parts of pyramidal societies that we've found throughout the world, although the others are on a much smaller scale. This would be the largest of its kind. It's interesting. And it's not unusual to find uh, pyramids that are not uh, brick and mortar, so to speak, because in China, the Xi'an pyramids, and they're well known for pyramids, in fact, there's bodies inside of them, 
you know, are terraformed mounds, um, but still a temple area considered a pyramid. So one has to accept this, and also the cochlea, of course, is a mound, but in the form of a pyramid. So this is quite common in cultures, especially maybe where there wasn't so uh, such an easy access to stone. I mean, you couldn't have done a big mound unless you did it out of sand. In Egypt, I mean, there are a few uh, mountains and hills, but not so easy. So they Aren't they have. finding them where there's no material near them, too? I mean, they're finding pyramids where there really is nothing to build a pyramid with for hundreds of miles. Well, I think, like, the Stonehenge is, I don't know about the pyramids per se, most of those, some of them they can try to figure out at least where the quarries were. But, like, Stonehenge, uh, some of those quarries that they used for the blue stones and things were actually quite, quite far away. And they had to, you know, travel great distances to get the right stones for those particular things. But, you know, I mean, we're talking, what's interesting about the Great Pyramid, of course, is not only the two to three ton blocks, but inside there's something like 40 to 50 ton blocks, you know, some very special blocks that were used. What's also interesting is, so that's in Giza, just, you know, south of Cairo, Egypt, if you go underneath the Temple Mound in Israel, and this is, of course, uh, you know, controlled by both, well, we'll say respected by both the Islamic as well as the Judaic and the Christian, you will also find underneath the ground these huge stone blocks, something of 50 meters. So the same technology that was used for the Great Pyramid was probably also used in um, the, underneath the Temple Mound, the whole Middle East ancient culture had this knowledge. I, if I can say one thing we always often talk about when we discuss this is there was one man who in our, we'll say, century, uh, the 20th century, that copied some of this technology, and that was the man who created uh, the area called Coral Castle. I just, the funny thing is, I just wrote a note to remind myself to ask you about that. We were there, we did the research there, and uh, as a matter of fact, one of our colleagues almost purchased the property. Yeah, too bad he didn't. They weren't, they ended up but not selling we have, it. We have one of the original films of uh, Leeds Gallen that we were going to release now on our new series of documentaries regarding this man who had remarkable energy. In fact, he was so special that during World War II, the U.S. Navy had a special team watching him and thought that perhaps he was a, a German agent receiving signals from a submarine that he could do these mine-over-matter events of moving huge stones into such perfect arrangements. Isn't the thought on that that it was audio, some sort of a sound wave that was doing that? Well... You know, John Anthony West uh, brought up that for the possibility of making the blocks in Giza, but what we found, and when our friends were, were thinking of buying it, one of the things they found out, he has this, uh, Ed Lee Scallon is his name, and he has this rotor or motor that he devised. In fact, he even has funny shoes that he used to wear while he was using whatever he was doing to create, to move these huge, I think he even has 20 blocks into place mm-hmm. and so it seems like it maybe was more of a electromagnetic type of technology so when in addition to the motor what we found out is when he died and he was really a loner very seldom would he ever ask anyone for help maybe just to use a truck if he had to go get something right but uh, they almost never were permitted inside his place but when he did die and they went in they found this copper wires all around in different places and of course they didn't know what it was this is I think back in the probably the 40s or 50s I can't remember exactly when he passed 
and they just tore it all down. Well, it didn't <laughs> so think nothing of it. <laughs> had created this whole electromagnetic field or some sort of energy field and was able to do this. Now, going back to the crop circles, many people have felt that, you know, they're made almost, and we believe almost instantaneously. There's uh, a friend of ours named Gary King who on 777, which is July 7th, 2007, was uh, trying to capture, because he figured it was a unique time, capture something, and he captured this manifestation, this huge crop circle, and the only thing that he got on film prior to it appearing was a literally a flash of light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's a, light, in a sense, is part of electromagnetic spectrum, electromagnetic wavelengths. They probably are able to code information into, you know, this frequency and use it, you know, upon nature, the crops to manifest sacred geometry. So when you speak of days, that's where you're speaking about a non-human intelligence, ET intelligence or UT intelligence, ultra-terrestrial. This is a process of identification we're going through in terms of a new biological textbook. And in our work and uh, conversations with one of the great mathematicians of England who uh, used an IBM computer to decode uh, Stonehenge, Joe Hawkins, Gerald shared with us that his private report was these were coming from a non-human source. And what was even more important was that there were musical cues in the shape of these geometric patterns. They were all interlocking to show musical keys or overtones through which the uh, higher intelligence or the ETs were trying to communicate with us that we are uh, to elevate our consciousness through certain sound structures. So, yeah, sound, I mean, we also equate sound uh, in some ways with electromagnetism because um, there's even sound in space. In fact, the scientists have looked at, you know, certain storms on Saturn or even uh, an area in Perseus, uh, and they found frequencies like A sharp B flat coming mm-hmm. out, maybe very, very low, much lower than you can hear. 50 octaves below middle C as we would measure it. But, okay. you know, all of life has this uh, frequency vibration, and if you get to the heart of, you know, the molecules, they are vibrating, and that's exactly what it's all about. So again, we go back to the drawing boards. We're being presented with so much information. It's baffling the mind to see that there are ancient musical structures that do work, that there are mathematical and musical patterns in the crop circles that seem to point to something that's going to come now from a higher level of intelligence in the process of of anointing or reprogramming the human race, depending upon your theology, into a new chapter of life. And we're finding a vast evidence in our context of research that fulfills the scientific uh, models of the Keys of Enoch, suggesting that we're part of a multidimensional awakening, that we are non-local human beings. I mean, we are multidimensional beings Mm -hmm. capable of using the universal intelligence, the universal mind, the universal processes of development, and we're no longer parochial three-dimensional human beings. They have to live according to the dualism of one religion or philosophy that tells us we're the only thing in the universe. And it's another aspect of the Keys of Enoch, and that is the fact that this knowledge is being given to us now so that we can be prepared for what's taking place in our near future. That could be, one, connection with other levels of intelligence who are superior to us in technology, and we need to not be, you know, just primitives when we connect with them. We need to have a greater knowledge about all this stuff. The thing is, maybe changes are taking place on the planet, and we need to just speed ourselves up in terms of technology to be able to accept these changes and to maybe get into space and do other things. As a matter of fact, we were in the fields of Hungary with a famous opera singer, E.B. Duba, back in the early 90s, 
mm-hmm. singing, and all of a sudden these crop circles began to manifest. They were the first of its kind, and suddenly black helicopters from the uh, Hungarian military appeared to take note of what were accomplished, and we had to explain that this was new territory to us, that we had no instrumentation, just our voices, and suddenly this sound phenomenon or soundscape phenomenon seemed to trigger other events. Whether we want to accept this as uh, something that's completely different from all of the other categories the crop circle specialists have put together, we recognize that there's a pure physical dimension behind crop circles, and they seem to come from another dimension, or from upstairs rather than from downstairs. And what's interesting okay. is they're showing us the very basic mathematics of the universe. Many people have interpreted them, that, but one that we were particularly in, I think it was 2008, was very interesting because it showed the phi, uh, which uh, both phi and pi. The Greek letter yeah. phi and, and pi. Pi, 3.14, and it actually carried it out, I think, to about nine decimal places. And this was just manifestation uh, of a crop circle. It took a while, it took about two weeks for people to decode it, but they realized that it was just spelling out one of these interesting geometries, and of course pi is used, and so is C, in the construction of the Great Pyramid, or at least it's shown in the structure of the Great Pyramid. So what does all this mean? I mean, what is the bottom line here? The human intelligence on Mother Earth is a natural cosmophysical phenomena on a universal scale, that we are participants in a vast universe of knowledge, that the interesting possibilities here are physical laws of science are preceded by consciousness laws, that consciousness is the hidden variable for quantum transitions between one evolutionary time scale and another, and that we're finally recognizing after tons and tons and tons of information and disclosures by astronaut Gordon Cooper and Ed Mitchell and others that the universe is a vast system of intelligence. So it's full of living intelligence. Everywhere we look with our telescopes and the meteorite materials that Desiree talked about to large quantum mechanical events, there's an unlimited number of possibilities of life, or should I say discrete consciousness thinking entities that organize life through geometric patterns that are responsible for the detailed workings of the universe. So we're just waking up and we're just very, very excited that someone like yourself has the time to put together a speaking program where you're having dynamic speakers from all over the world bringing out a, a new message, a positive message of our future. And I think it's also important that people start realizing that the universe we live in is not, again, just chaotic. And if they put that into their personal lives, I think that makes a real difference. If they can start getting into the flow of that dynamic, um, they will actually start flowing with the universe around them and that life becomes actually more in tune and more aligned. In fact, interesting enough that many people think the whole geometry of the universe might be some sort of dodecahedral Mm -hmm. space. This is still uh, controversial, but it's been proposed by both... In Nature Magazine on the cover, in fact, a few years ago, and this validates what is in the keys of Enoch, key 201, where the Merkaba vehicle is seen as a dodecahedral system surrounding the human experiment. So... So we don't want to get too far out here, but but basically, once they, you start understanding that this geometry within you is also within all life, you start respecting all life, you start, you know, functioning as part of a greater universe and not seeing yourself in isolation. Many things bring us into, especially in this country, in the U.S., bring us into a thought of, you know, let's be better than the other person, let's be the I, let's be the apex. You know, we need to also consider ourselves as building blocks for everybody coming together to work for a better world, and I think this is very important. When you see how interconnected we really are, 
in terms of geometry, in terms of life space, in terms of consciousness, how influenced our consciousness can be on other people by putting out negative energy. I can't help but think of Dr. Emoto, who's shown um, if you take a, a water and you look at it after it's been frozen, you see that if you put positive thoughts out, you get this beautiful geometry uh, of, of nature. And if you put negative thoughts or play really heavy, loud music and stuff, he gets this kind of massive glove that's not very beautiful at all. Oh, really? So, that, you know, that's interesting. I haven't heard that one. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, Dr. Emoto from Japan, a very, very special person uh, looking at the water. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen that, but it just shows you the power of thought and the power of sacred geometry in nature. But we can break it down to, to being negative and being, you know, a, a blob, which we've kind of done in a certain sense to the to the local world that we're caretakers of, or we can bring it back together and have it in terms of, you know, as be- the beauty that it is. So we've recognized that depending upon our stage of life, we're between 65 and 75 to 80 percent water, and that uh, the work of Dr. Emoto and others have shown us that there are crystalline patterns of life within us. You know, water is the memory um, holding force within nature as well as uh, the triggering force within our human biological nature. As we accelerate, we see these fantastic patterns that consciousness and water are co-sharing. And we could say that we are at a stage now of recognizing that our physical universe that surrounds us is not independent of our own thoughts. We construct each other and we construct a whole new domain of life as consciousness becomes aware of its greater power. But that has to come through the basic element and how they are correlated and changed through music and through consciousness projection. We have put together this wonderful book called The 72 Divine Names that go into the geometries of how the ancients use certain mantric patterns to create certain geometries of consciousness communication. If I can shift for a minute, uh, talking about water, one of the interesting things, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are interested in, is it's possible that new technologies for energy can come through water. Of course, hydrogen, this is something that we're out here in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger actually changed his Hummer into running off of hydrogen, and that's a pretty uh, cumbersome process, but there's other processes as well that just breaks down the water slightly, even through vibration and stirring. This is coming out uh, from Japan, and you're able to get enough uh, from water of hydrogen to run cars and run motorcycles. So water might be the new solution for, um, you know, who, for our energy technology. Well, we definitely got to get away from fossil fuel. No ifs, ands, or buts. We got to do something, get off our butts, and get away from that stuff. And it might have been the energy or something similar to that that was used by the ancient Egyptians. Maybe we're re- really rediscovering our past and finding new energy possibilities. Again, we come back to the fact that the seawater batteries could have been used on a very unique sociological scale of building these temples along the Nile. Anyway, we are reaching a point of decoding much of the ancient knowledge, and we find that there are certain chemical markings and water markings on some of the structures, the subsurface structures that we've discovered along the Nile. So everything is, shall we say, going into a new phase of discovering the whole pathway of the human race. Jesus, uh, the great 
teacher in the New Testament put it very simply, we're a part of a house of many mansions, and we began to put together all of the dimensional realities that we're connected with. We realized that we have this wonderful possibility to be unique caretakers, not only of nature, we're taking greater responsibility throughout the world for our remaining water resources, non-renewable resources, but also to put a charter together to preserve those evidences of water in outer space. Desiree and I have authored several papers on space law dealing with preserving the Martian uh, water resources. And we're working now with ex-astronauts and those who are interested in seeing the development of a whole new civilization on the high frontier that will be safeguarded against the uh, the misuse of technology and a wanderlust for self-destruction that is reflected so much in the key turning points of human history where science has been out of balance with ethic, out of balance with compassion and love that we must have for all members of the human race, and out of balance for higher knowledge that must be balanced really with a type of consciousness and a spirituality of interconnectedness that we are part of the divine mind and the divine universe at work. And bringing this back into outer space, uh, we just, of course, saw in um, news releases the Kepler-22b, which is this beautiful planet that looks like it has water resources and could house uh, life. And also, it was just released that that little rover called Opportunity, which is going around Mars for a long time, and this was released actually at the American Geophysical Union here in San Francisco, that it discovered a large area where water once flowed on Mars, and they discovered it because they found iron and magnesium minerals, which is very common for water, so that Mars, if you've ever seen the pictures some of the scientists have done, Mars might have actually had more water than Earth did at one time in its ancient past. So, you know, there's, there's tons of planets out there with life. We're all just, you know, ready to hopefully interconnect with some of these life forms pretty soon. Uh, we feel some of them are very positive. Some maybe aren't here to help us so much, and we need to be strong enough to understand who we work with and who we don't work with. Well, this requires a whole new constitution and a whole new charter, which uh, other colleagues, Rosin, for example, along with the Scott Jones, who's part of the Disclosure Project in 1995, have come forth, saying that we do not need to have weaponization of outer space. We must take, as it were, a, a fresh look at our new frontier. We must recognize that man on Earth and mankind or humankind as a whole are not entirely homogenous phenomena, but are complicated combinations of various forms of cosmic intelligence. And this really comes back to the fact that we are a cosmoplanetary anthropoecology. We are humanity that is waking up to the fact that we can change our own DNA with the new evidences of the meteorite material. We can change our whole structure of evolution by a more embraceive consciousness and a physics that understands evolution doesn't stop with Mother Earth. And we can be more ecumenical in our theology and sociology by recognizing that all great cultures have shared a similar music and mathematics of racing consciousness in each of the major intervals of history personified in these ancient megalithic centers, which are the nexus point of Mother Earth and the beginning of evolution, not simply a few thousand years ago, but tens of thousands of years ago. And maybe this evolution is not just extraterrestrial, but as we often mention, also possibly ultra-terrestrial, which would be intelligences not needing a physical body, maybe intelligences operating in parallel worlds or parallel universes, and that are able to come here. Why? Because 
even now with quantum physics, we're realizing we can send information faster than the speed of light. The way the universe is structured with quantum physics, it actually operates faster than light because it's already there or it's partly there and it's able to go back and forth and react with one another. So it's, it's a new way of thinking, but the fact that we can be in touch with other levels of intelligence that exist in a far distant place, almost like beam me up Scotty, because we have the knowledge now of quantum physics and why this would work. It's not a violation of Einstein, as many people are, are, are concerned with, and scientists are now even, of course, coming forward and saying that light is not necessarily a, a really firm constant, that you can even push light faster and push light slower. But this is a whole other thing. This is quantum physics. This is the interconnectedness of nature. So we have put a lot of information out verbally in our conversation with you. But I invite listeners to one of our film documentaries called Merkaba, Voyage of a Starseed, and see a multidimensional constructs of what we've been talking about, namely swimming in hyperspace, seeing these structures along the Nile unfold into multi-geometric form, seeing the structures underneath Giza, the various chambers, doing a walkabout in the Giza frontier and recognizing the sacred geometries of what is there in China and Japan, connected not only with Egypt, but also Central and South America. We feel that the, the human mind cannot work with consciousness expansion only through words. It has to go into a higher level of a new language that is partly music, partly fractal geometry, partly dealing with other levels of information through organizational processes that use all of the science senses as well as the paraphysical. And that is why we've been teaching largely through a new type of film experience of immersion. So our films that have been uh, widely received throughout the world entitled uh, Merkaba, Light Body and Initiation, are highly recommended for those who've stayed with us through this conversation that we've had with you this afternoon. It's actually been a very enlightening conversation, no doubt, and we have to have you two on again numerous times to even begin to cover everything that you two speak about. Well, we've been going uh, into so many specialized areas, and now's the chance to download, which is why we're coming out with the documentation we did in Egypt prior to Zawi Hawass. Now that he's left his office, we can bring out other information that will be of delight to students of Egyptology and to professionals themselves looking at a much greater complex of uh, symbols and uh, interconnecting uh, temples that fall out of what I believe to be a type of evolutionary blueprint of the human race growing up, putting the pieces together, connecting the dots, and realizing that we are all part of a larger process of divine wisdom. And speaking of pyramids, we invite your listeners to join us at a conference uh, in Cancun on the days after December 21st. That's December 22nd and 23rd. We're going to be sponsoring at the convention center in Cancun, a conference, because we don't believe that December 21st is the end of the planet, but it could be a new day dawning, and hopefully people will be able to come together with a greater love and sharing after events taking place already that particular day in Chichen Itza, December 21st. So, um, anyway, well, you're talking about year. 2012 then, aren't you? Is that what you mean? Yeah, the day after Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's what we're interested in. Well, I just told everybody just to cancel Christmas for 2012. Since it's going to end on the 21st, you might as well not buy those gifts. Or come to be with all of us in uh, in the Yucatan, which is uh, which should be a very interesting time. So, well, we just we think that uh, you know it's a transformational period of time. It's not necessarily the end of the planet. So. So again, taking it from the top, we believe that. December 22nd and 23rd mark a sense of finding out the other side of the story of the Mayan culture speak, not only through the terminal temples, but through unique films that we're going to be showing of the pillars of light, 
the prephysical phenomena that our colleagues of the Academy in Mexico were able to film in recent times, showing that there are other, shall we say, cosmic architects involved with the greater story of human renewal, human regenesis, and human rebirth, and not simply the end of the time, the destruction of the human race, all of the negative uh, electronic seance that has plagued uh, young people in the West. This is a time to, shall we say, uh, make a massive turnabout towards a transition with new evidences at our fingertips that we are not alone in the universe and our cosmic cousin counterpart want us to grow up and celebrate the greater cosmology of the house in many mansions. So this is a great invitation we extend to all of you. We thank you very much for having us aboard as your guest, and uh, we just thank you also for being the beacon of light, bringing, again, a, a whole new opportunity for people to hear the other side of what's happening behind the scenes and to go out with a sense of renewal as we approach the great challenges of the year 2012. May your heart smile in the light, and may you look toward the heavens, as the ancient Greeks said, out also towards the stars, recognizing that we are part of a divine family. We are part of a story that doesn't end. It continues. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. J.J. and Desiree Hertog. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Maranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Taller Realms. With us right now, we have Suzanne Taylor. How are you doing today? Oh, just beautifully. Um, all is well. <laughs> and we missed you last week, but again, that wasn't your fault. That was my fault. I was so involved in editing, I, I ran out of time. Here, yes. I know. I'm we sorry. I, t- I take full blame for it. I just didn't have enough time in the day. <laughs> Well, here we are, so off to a fresh start. So what do you got for us today? Well, you know, I'm basically the crop circle person, although really, that I'm actually really not. I've become the crop circle queen um, because I have these movies that I've done, and so they are kind of my ticket. But it's a ticket into the world of situation or a world or a universe that's so much bigger, so that is so much more vast, that's so much well beyond the definition we hold of it. And so, as you know, we're doing this segment regularly uh, about outside-the-box ideas or events or things that don't fit into ordinary reality. And uh, the crop circles, of course, are my, you know, playing field in spades for for such a situation. And all the things, I think all the things we've done so far have been about other things. I have a little list on uh, my blog, theconversation.org, column left, which is called Outside the Box Ideas. And it's that sort of thing that we've been talking about just based on the fact that I come to this whole situation through the crop circles. But I thought this week I wanted to go back to the crop circles because the reason I tuned into them, my interest always was in the larger field of consciousness. What do we think, who do we think we are? And science defines us much more narrowly than the reality, you could say, where consciousness does not uh, 
you know, science and consciousness are exclusive fields virtually. They look for it in tubules and all those funny words they have about parts of the brain. Not those funny words, but to me... Well, yeah, they're funny words because I have a hard time... under. I have a heck of a time understanding some of these words sometimes. <laughs> well, I went to a big conference once that was all about, uh, presumably, consciousness, and 90% of it was devoted to trying to define it by science and how, how, do, how does it come about through the, bo- the body. And Willis Harmon, who was the president of uh, Noetic Science at the time, uh, who left us, unfortunately, with a brain tumor some years ago. But I was hanging out with him at the conference, and he was the close closing speaker. He was to wrap up the whole thing. I think it's called Science and Consciousness, and this was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And they went on, they did them every year. But at the end of the conference, his critique was, you're looking in the wrong place, or you're, you're waiting this as if somehow you're going to find consciousness in this objective reality that you put under microscopes, and you're missing the boat uh, in terms of the, you know, much bigger situation that we should be examining and looking to and exploring and what have you. So uh, anyway, there, th- here we are, here I am, way out there in this beyond the ordinary category, and and as I say, I do want to talk about. Uh, crop circles today, uh, the, uh, and I think I started to say the reason I got into uh, them so uh, uh, heavily or, you know, how, how, much, how much I've done with them is because they do provide us with something concrete that we can uh, examine, we can take into the laboratory, and we can determine that they're coming from an unknown source and it's not us. And I thought when I discovered the circles, which is a long time ago now, I've been involved in them for 20 years, when I discovered them, I thought, oh, you know, all the other kinds of things that I was so interested in, self-awareness, personal growth, uh, the kinds of paranormal sort of things, uh, this, this was one thing that could change everyone's mind at once, all over the planet, whereas self-development, it would change your mind, you would spend your life (laughs) looking for more of yourself, so to speak. But I thought, oh, no, wait a minute, I'm an impatient person. I, you know, I can't spend lifetimes, although I guess I have to do that also. We all have to go (laughs) looking for our demons and our disowned selves and our childhood traumas. I mean, we have to do that. But in addition to that, we can be in a different world where we really are in a difficult... I mean, I, we don't have to argue for that anymore. It used to be, it kind of looked like Ozzy and Harriet, and nobody understood what the problem was. But starting in the 60s, we started to get the idea that society wasn't the um, be-all, end-all, and that we needed to do something about it. And so, as I was you know, learning all these ways to tune into myself, and then the circles came along, and I thought, oh, this is fast. This, if, if we could really get the world's attention on the circles, overnight we'd be in a different world. And how much that really, you know, needs to or should be happening. So I want to go back to the circles. Boy, was, is, that, was that, is that all introductory? Yeah, that was Did a good intro, huh? Long introduction. <laughs> That's a long you can tell. You can I tell that you've got. I my website. Come on, I have to do that too. I have to remember my business here. CropCircleMovie.com is where you go to see the trailer and um, 
buy the DVD of my movie, which is called What on Earth, and the tagline is Inside the Crop Circle Mystery. And, and Christmas is coming up, too, also, so which, that's a perfect stocking stuffer. Oh, well, especially because we have a huge sale going if you buy in quantity with just that idea that you should give them to all your friends and open their minds and blow their minds. And we've made the price cheap as if you buy five or more, you're really, you know, I'm, you're, you're really getting them below wholesale, actually. So I encourage everybody to take a look, CropCircleMovie.com. But now I want to tell you about what our subject is today. And I wanted to go to something today. You know, there's so much skepticism about the circles, and I am a wealth of information about why there is a real phenomenon, what the evidence is, what... And it takes a long time. You know, I made a movie. I mean, I'm, I started to say that I'm the executive producer of Crop Circle's Quest for Truth, which came out 10 years ago, and you can also find on that website. That was the first feature film ever done about the circles. So there's lots to say that point you in the direction of authenticity. But what I especially like that I, I'm going to talk about today is a very... A single simplistic absolute in for me in my reality that just absolutely dismisses all of that argument because it's huge argument particularly from the hoaxer community it, it, it seems to be a like it's like the um, the tea party <laughs> of crop circles <laughs> they, they they are very har- they harass they insist uh, people keep saying oh you know you they're all fake Suzanne why are you you trying to make a fortune on misinformation make a fortune ha ha yeah. ha you know no, they have no idea what they're talking about there <laughs> really I mean th- those of us who are really dedicated crop circle people we've given much of our lives to it believe me none of us have gotten rich <laughs> people do don't make money matters, from doing this you know. Like this radio show, this I mean, is just a labor of love. If we put, my gosh, I haven't really? made any money off this. Really? So you have to buy my DVD, but you know what it cost me to make that DVD? You know, people say, oh, you should give it away. Uh, wait a minute, I'd like to keep going in life and have be able to do more things. So right. anyway, so back back to back to my rock-solid, absolute bottom line, how I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a real phenomenon, and I always, I mean, I know a lot of things, but this is my single little, you know, absolute, and it's a Nancy um, Talbot, who is the T in BLTresearch.com, which is the science site. They've done most of the the science studies. They've had peer review uh, papers they've written that have, no, papers they've written that have appeared in peer-reviewed journals which is how presumably we take our reality, but then you have to read them. <laughs> and uh, there's a disconnect there. Uh, so here we have these peer review articles. But so- Nancy is such a hard-nosed science girl. She used to write uh, research reports for professors at Harvard. She has a distinguished history in science, and she's not making things up. And in fact, whenever... Nancy uh, declares anything or says anything, it's because she's done incredible research. I mean, the scientific experiments that have been done on the crop formations where they've taken the soil and the crops from inside a circle into the laboratory, that's, you know, mostly her work. And in fact, the test results show that we are not making them. 
but again, that's kind of a longer story than the definitive story to me, which is that Nancy saw one being formed. Now, you know, you don't know Nancy, and the listeners don't know Nancy, but I know Nancy, and I know Nancy's not making up stories. And in fact, anybody who's in the field or whatever, they don't think Nancy's making things up. They'll question the lab. They'll say, oh, it's a bad lab, or that the guy calls himself Dr. Levengood, which is L of BLT research, and he doesn't really have a doctorate. And, you know, as if they're ignoring the results and they're kind of questioning the, uh, I, I guess, I guess they're in, the implication is that the researcher lied because he didn't have a doctor. I, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, which is completely uh, irrelevant, but, but well known. People do that in this business. Mostly irrelevant, yeah. Significantly irrelevant, right. Um, so Nancy was eyewitness to a formation forming, and she has that story on BLT research. It's along, you know, what happened, how it came about, what she was looking at, where what, you know, what led up to it. And I'm just going to say that, that that's going to, because I'm going to go on to tell you another really wonderful story that probably your listeners haven't heard that was Nancy's story uh, about her ongoing work with a guy named Robert Vanderbrook. I always call him Robert with two Bs, such a funny name. Uh, so I think Van, yes, Vandenbrook is the rest of his name. And Nancy's been going to Holland and working with him for some years now probably 10 more maybe, because he's an extraordinary person. Uh, his extraordinariness started with crop circle extraordinariness, which is Nancy got, what got Nancy there, because this, her primary work has been on crop circles. So she uh, hooked up with Robert some time ago because, and started going to the Netherlands because he doesn't leave, uh, because crop circles formed around Robert. You know, England is the major crop circle uh, landing site. Perhaps half of all of them each year land in England, and the rest of them are scattered through 50-ish countries. I'm not quite sure what the count is right now, but they just get a little smatter. Netherlands actually gets a fair amount. Netherlands and Germany, I think, are the only other two countries. The United States, uh, a little bit of a fair amount, although the last couple of years have been skinny. But Germany and the Netherlands have... They had a you know decent amount of uh, a studyable amount or whatever uh, statistically relevant amount and indeed most of them in the Netherlands form around where Robert is but that's not the only thing Robert knows when they're coming he knows what field they're going to be in he get he's a hugely hugely bad word probably but hugely psychic human being. Uh, so that's quite interesting. He's a psychic human being who's horsing around with crop circles, but then you get to see some of the other kinds of abilities that he has. Not only does he know when crop circles are forming, but other, I mean, all of this is on bltresearch.com, and, and absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm going to be doing some more writing about this in my blog, where I try to put fascinating things. It's theconversation.org. I want to just tell you, first of all, a crop circle story about Robert, which isn't that he saw them forming, but something else quite unusual. So Nancy has something on her website, which is report a crop circle forming, and she gets reports from all over the world. And she got a report that there was a crop circle in Virginia in the United States, and it was in grass, and it was described to her. And she's in constant touch with Robert, and a lot of the crop circles that they get in the Netherlands are in grass. And so she just 
emailed uh, Robert and told him that there's a circle in Virginia, and she told him some of the data about it. Um, just to my surprise, the phone rang only minutes after I'd sent the Virginia Circle photo to Robert. It was Robert telling me this circle was man-made. I'd like her to say human-made, but, you know, we're still stuck in some old language here. It was <laughs> man-made. Okay. Well, in fact, it was, so it turned out anyway. So, but this, this, is, this is what Robert told her on the phone. I'm going to read this little paragraph. Robert described to me that he saw, quote, a teenage boy with brownish hair down the back of his neck wearing a black baseball cap, making the circle. He went on to say this boy was the local boy who delivers the paper, and that his <laughs> name was Mike. He also said he thought this boy might be part of a group which likes to make fun of anomalous phenomena. Well, okay, so Nancy gets this report from Robert. She goes back to the source, the one who had posted report a crop circle on the site. And it was a guy named Mr. Howell, Tom Howell, and so she says, uh, I got this information from Robert, and what, what would you check it out or some such? Okay, Mr. Howell wrote back saying, that is amazing information. Our Roanoke Times newspaper is delivered early in the morning by a teenager named Michael Collins. I spoke with him once when I was up early one morning about my interest in UFOs and crop circles. Should I press him for a possible confession of hoaxing? Well, yes, <laughs> and he was very quick to admit that he had done it. I mean, he wasn't trying to, you know, carry his uh, perpetration to the grave. He was willing to admit that he had done it. He was just he proud of the fact. He, he, there's a photo on Nancy's website of Michael Collins demonstrating how he made this circle. But can you believe that, that Robert nailed that so definitively I mean, the entire description of that boy, it's like one of those things you go, oh, my God, what is this? This world is beyond the microscopes. This isn't what you can see or replicate or experiment on. There's another, we're in an envelope of information or connection or awareness. Or, and if, if your instrument is tuned in, you can see beyond what's in front of your eyes. Was he just tuned so, into the crop I circles, love, though? I mean, he, he was in the Netherlands. How, said Was he just he's just involved in the crop circles, though? Because he, he was in the Netherlands, and he tuned into this kid doing that. That's that's kind of unbelievable, actually. It is unbelievable. Well, he, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Robert beyond crop circles, actually. Uh, but, he yes, he, the, the, the involvement that Nancy had was because of the crop circles, and they've been heavily involved in what's going on and her spending time with Robert and, and taking that material into the laboratories, what have you. But I, I, that story just floors me. Again, I know that this is going to be, this is accurate. Nancy's not making this story up. And it just throws our description of reality out the window. It, we are in a much more complex and layered and dimensional universe than we acknowledge. And, of course, we know a lot of paranormal stuff goes on. But when you see something, you know, in front of your own eyes, that just absolutely floors you, well, it makes your understanding deepen, and, you know, all of us with deeper understanding would create a different world, so it's a blessing to, you know, have these kinds of things. But I, I'll tell you a little bit more about Robert. I was at a conference in, uh, actually, I was doing the uh, monthly guest, I was a monthly guest at the MUFON meeting in Phoenix uh, this month, this last month, 
and there was a conference going on at the same time that's a yearly conference put on by Chet Snow, who's in my movie, and uh, I can't remember. It used to be all crop circles, and now it's other things as well. I can't remember what title he gave it this year, but it's a lot of, you know, interesting, trippy kinds of things that, that he presents. Uh, but Nancy had one of the sessions, and it wasn't to talk about crop circles. It was to talk about Robert, and she did not let that one be filmed Everything gets filmed at Chet's conference, and you can buy the DVDs afterwards. She didn't let that one be filmed because it's brand new material, and whatever she's got, you know, to do whatever she's going to do with it. Uh, did not want it to be uh, spread around like this. But everybody at this event was just our jaws just dropped. And what we were watching, we were watching Robert with a camera. In front of him was nothing. He was in front of a closet door and a white wall and a white closet door, and it's, and he keeps snapping pictures. And what we're seeing is the, uh, what do you call that thing where you watch, where you look at the pictures, the screen, whatever, on his camera? Well, the monitor, the display, you mean? The monitor, whatever. So we're seeing what pictures he's getting, and he's not getting anything, he's not getting anything. Then all of a sudden, he starts to get things. Now, this he did this several times, and we uh, let's see. I think we saw actually twice. We saw two sequences. But he's been doing this lately, and what he's getting is dead people. But he's not oh. just getting any old dead people. He's getting recognizable dead people. Wow. And so I'll just tell you, one of one of them I'll just tell you was John Lennon. But we didn't know John Lennon. We didn't have any. any we just saw, oh, my God. Who is that? Oh. What? Oh, How oh, cool. John Lennon. I, so... Again, you can get on Nancy's website, bltresearch.com, and look this thing up. Look up Robert, and you'll you'll see much more than, obviously, what I'm telling you. But I want to tell you about the other sequence that he got. It so happens that the person doing the filming of Robert with the camera, and, you know, we see Robert standing, we see the setup, and then then we see the screen uh, and watch what pictures he's taking. And he is all of a sudden this figure starts to emerge and this is terrible i should have looked this up right before i was on here because i've forgotten the guy's name he was um bet midler's manager and he died um a year ago or so or during 2010 sometime and the person doing the photography the filming was the filmmaker from my first movie william gazecki uh, who made crop circles quest for truth for which i'm the executive producer and he, because, you know, he had Nancy in that first movie, she had him there doing this filming. She's actually going to do, be, do some kind of, be doing some kind of feature or some such as Robert. I guess maybe that's also why they don't want this information out right now. But all of a sudden, this figure, this person started to emerge. And, well, it was clearly recognizable that it was this manager of Bette Midler's and um, too bad we don't have a chat room. Somebody could be looking this up as we speak. Uh, yeah. But whatever, we just call him Mr. Manager. <laughs> Anybody looked it up would know. The dead manager of Bette Midler. So. Uh, it turns out that that guy was a mentor of William Gazeki's. So when William Gazeki is filming this and he sees this figure emerge on the screen, picture after picture, close-ups, eyes, noses, whatever, you know, a succession of pictures in which... Oh, my God, it's him. And then Robert starts to psychically tune in to this being. And he reports out, I can't remember all the things he said, but, of course, William knows this guy, knew this guy. And I remember specifically 
he said he was talking about William, and he was saying that William has this stomach condition and better be careful and blah blah. And William has this stomach condition. Now Robert doesn't know this. I mean, Robert is just relaying his psychic attunement to the being who's not there, who's showing up on the screen of this wow. camera and this succession of pictures he's taking, who's feeding back data, Robert is, reading the mind of this dead person that William is authenticating and saying, I don't believe this. Oh, my God. How could this be happening? That's so, amazing. Anyway, that's the end of my story. You can read much more of it on bltresearch.com, although... I don't know that you would get that very specific story because Nancy is saving that one. But you'll get, there were pictures of, that Robert took of, of ghost people, dead people, and there's, you know, information about that on the website. This particular one is at John Lennon. These are being withheld for future purposes, but it, you don't really need them. You could just tune in, on the, particularly after what I said to you, and you're not going to get on it and say, oh, this is some, one, another one of those fake sites or something. No, 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 no. You know, again, I'm I'm your uh, evaluator here. I'm I I'm your guarantor that everything that Nancy says is, you know, bottom line truth. She's not making anything up and I'm so grateful that Nancy exists. You know, if if Nancy didn't exist cuz she actually funded that project BLT research. She got a medical um, malpractice settlement. She put it all into this uh, laboratory work, and we're very grateful to her because without that, you know, whenever people ask me when I do interviews about the circles and people, radio shows, and people ask me, what's my best evidence? I say the best evidence is this science work that was done where the lab doesn't lie. When the lab tells you there are changes in the plants and changes in the soil and they can't be accounted for, you know, science is the way we authenticate things. So I could tell you lots of other things, and you see my movie. You'll see lots of other things. You see both movies, in fact. You go to CropCircleMovie.com, you can get both movies. Um, and mine is actually on iTunes also, What on Earth. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of other kinds of authentications. But the bottom line for the general public is what science tells us, and you find it on BLTResearch.com. So without that, I don't know that the crop circles could have withstood the assault that they are under, which has escalated over the years to where the last couple of years has been merciless. I tell you, when people, I post something on Facebook and they post under it, oh, you liar, you know they're all human-made, man-made, they always say man-made. That's uh, ridiculous. correct, I always, yes, my mind always goes human-made. Uh, and they, po- they, they post it, I think... I don't even know you, and you're telling me what I think. You know, it's frustrating, to say the least. But in the huge escalation of that kind of assault, uh, where for some reason it used to be that the, the hoaxers were happy to have the public believe there was a real phenomenon, because otherwise, if there were no mystery to it, they wouldn't get the hordes of tourists who come to look at these things. So they were... You know, they were kind of poking at it all the time or making jabs at it or whatever. I mean, they're, they're not the nicest people, and they're, they're trying to fool the world. Uh, but in the last couple of years, it's quite escalated, as I say, to where I feel like they're on my back. And I don't know why, because if they kill the phenomenon, they kill their goose that laid their golden egg or some such, or whatever reason they're doing these things. But maybe their funding's dried up. Maybe the government was funding them, and we've 
we're at the point now where they've bashed things enough so that the public is much more skeptical in these last couple of years than they had been before because of all that bashing. So maybe they're throw maybe maybe they were being paid, maybe they're not being paid anymore, maybe it's time they're you know, if there's no if there's nobody funding them, why are they going out in the cold and in the night and, and you know, it's not comfortable and some of the crops are I mean, you wouldn't want to be an oilseed rape. It's tall, it's smelly, it's sticky. You know, they're doing their nefarious stuff. Why would they do it if there was not some benefit to them? They can't get acknowledged. They can't get, you know, great artists or whatever. So one would suspect that somehow they're being put up to it. Uh, maybe it's drying up, and maybe that's why they've become so much more willing to shoot the phenomenon down. But it's it's really having an effect. I don't know. From the guests that you get, John, are people... You, are they talking crop circles at all, and, and and are they dismissing them more than they used to, in the, you know, prior to a couple of years ago? Well, we haven't heard a whole lot about those, but, I mean, in general, everyone's dismissing everything. I mean, there's more skeptics now that no matter what you say, even with scientific evidence, like you were saying, like you said, they'll right. say, oh, so-and-so didn't actually graduate in 72. They graduated in 73. Yeah, right. This must not be the truth. Right. That's like Obama's birth certificate, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a whole other yeah. story. Whatever. I mean, just don't believe, you know, whatever. Okay, whatever. But, so, yes, I, I guess um, you think this re- level of, of critique and skepticism has risen for the because it's always been the out there. It just feels to me like the crop circles have been under particular assault in the last uh, two summers. So I don't know if, how that corresponds to anything else or, you know, and I'm also so much in the middle of it, I may not get an objective point of view. I don't... But I, but I kind of get when people talk to me or new people, people don't know me, I meet people, oh, no, 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 that's been quite discredited, you know? So, I don't know, maybe, maybe, but whatever. I, again, this segment was really about bringing you some bottom lines for me of just how I know there's no argument that there's a real phenomenon. Well, that and, story you were talking you know, about with, what was his name, Robert, I believe, that that's absolutely amazing. I, I've never heard that in my life. I'm sitting here with my mouth open. Well, it, Robert's an interesting character. He uh, was put into an institution or, or in his youth because they thought there was something so wrong with him, and he couldn't study in school. His, his mind was always in, in outer space, you know. Um, and Nancy says he's hugely intelligent, but he's not hugely educated because he didn't, you know, he wasn't treated right. But he's a, a, quite a fascinating character, and I loved, I'd only heard about him before from Nancy, from the reports that she'd written, and from those photos. I'd seen photos of dead people that are there, and, and I never quite understood, well, how does he get those? But then when I saw the footage, I thought, oh my God, he's just standing in front of nothing, and he's clicking his camera. And, you know, he wasn't asking for anything in particular, but obviously, since in the one he was being photographed by the filmmaker and the filmmaker's mentor shows up, it obviously is because of the filmmaker that that's the spirit that, you know, that, that delivered itself. So that was just fascinating to watch, I tell you. Do you think people would just pay attention to what there is to pay attention to? Not that so much because, you know, it's not public yet, but there's plenty of stuff that is. If people would just pay attention and not just take an automatically skeptical position about all this stuff, we we would have a much more, uh, you know, open population to things that are outside the box. Uh, a lot of it is just n- no attention being paid. That's what I always say about the crop circles. The evidence is there, but people have to pay attention. And it's the reason I make movies about them, to try to really 
bring that. I mean, how do you get the world's attention to anything? You make movies. Right. So, what on earth is the latest one? CropCircleMovie.com, and you can get Crop Circle's Quest for Truth there as well. And of course, I highly recommend them. <laughs> but yeah, we also have, by the way, a Spanish subtitle version. Um, some of us live in heavily, like a lot of people work for me from the Spanish-speaking population, gardeners and electricians and the like, and I'm giving them all my movie, <laughs> my, my Spanish subtitle movie for Christmas. There you so. go. <laughs> all right, that was Suzanne Taylor's Outside the Box. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo info Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. This is Sam Moranto, and Death is with us right now. And we're going to talk about some of the more interesting paranormal aspects of the UFO phenomena. Des, you know, we keep on hearing people talk about the tie-in of the possible uh, other dimensional aspects of the phenomena. From what you've experienced so far and have heard... What do you think as far as the relevance of that? Well, there's there's a few interesting cases that I have been working on uh, just recently. I did allude to them earlier on. Um, I'm always fascinated with the fact that people see an object and it just disappears. I mean, it doesn't doesn't dry, uh, fly away. It doesn't zoom off. It just zap gone. Um, you know. That, that smacks of interdimensional travel, for want of a better explanation. Um, that's that's a, that's a very fascinating part of the subject, but it's one that can't readily be explained, I suppose. There's there's not yeah. a lot to it, but um, I just what was it yesterday, I believe, or the day before? I had watched a uh, a presentation by Jacques Vallée on TEDx. I have to find it, but it's on YouTube. It's very, very good. Talking about the, you know, as far as physics goes, that there's this missing part between uh, mechanical, the, the new, you know, Newtonian uh, physics and the uh, quantum mechanics. There's something else in there, and he calls it the missing sister, I believe. And that alludes to some something far more unusual uh, as a component. And he explains it quite well. Um, maybe we'll get Chuck on, hopefully, to explain it to the people instead of me trying to give it a an attempt. But it, it was... Oh, he did a beautiful job. And, um, you know, this... The paranormal is, to me, well, for... I know for John, for myself, and for quite a few people, uh, we were brought up with... A lot of paranormal activity around us, and uh, the fact that members in our family have been um, 
let's say, initiated into the, uh, let's say, the club of knowing that there's far more than going on in this world than what we see, feel, and um, are told that ex exists, that demons, per se, may be far more than just uh, hoopla, and ghosts are just more than myths, and UFOs are just imaginary objects. Uh, I think I think it was Sean that said, he, how is it at the age of 40, 40, whatever he was at the time when this stuff started to happen, 43 years old, he says that you finally realize that when your mother and father told you there were no boogeymans, there wasn't anything like the boogeyman, that they were wrong. And then how do you tell your children? Yeah. Then what do you do when you tell your children when they encounter this? Well, something I found out... Since I've been doing the uh, UFO studies, uh, that it, the paranormal it encompasses a wide range of subjects, and um, for example, uh, ghosts, spirits, stuff like that. Um, although I actually haven't experienced anything like that, I do know um, that it depends on your level of sensitivity. Uh, being over in Scotland, there, I met somebody who she calls herself a sensitive. But she is very tuned in to all kinds of uh, spirits and, uh, and entities that keep popping into her house, into her life. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I've only, I think, only once did I ever actually see something or experience something. And even then, it didn't put the heebie-jeebies up me. Um, I think I must be very insensitive because I, I can't get to see any of the stuff that people are telling me. But this one occasion I was sitting here at the house and I was watching the TV and Corinne, my wife, hadn't come in yet. And uh, it was four o'clock in the afternoon and she doesn't normally get in till about eight o'clock. Anyway, four o'clock in the afternoon, I see the shadow walk, go past the window and open the back door then opened and I saw her come in, walk around the kitchen table and sit down on one of the chairs, put her bag down and then she started crying and I thought what is going on I thought she'd been fired or something from work so I went out to go console her and she wasn't there and the back door was shut absolutely unbelievable just, just didn't know what to make of it uh, that's been my only experience in my uh, 50 odd years of being around so yeah it's uh, it, it depends on your level of sensitivity is what I understand I, I know one time <laughs> What what got me really into the paranormal in a big way? It all started once with a um, what I thought was a vision of a woman at the foot of my bed, and it was I woke up and there was this full body apparition at the end of my bed, scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, the next day I went to work. And at that time, I was working at my uncle's machine shop, and I was sweeping the floor in the back, and I was too frightened to even talk about it. And without a sound, my cousin's crept up on me, and he says, Sam, and I turn around instantaneously, and he says, did you ever see a ghost? And I says, yes, last night. And he goes, so did I. Oh, and okay. <laughs> uh, And uh, that opened up a most intriguing series of things that happened in my life. Here my cousin tells me simultaneously that he had seen a ghost 
and that I had seen a ghost. I had something that in my room that night scared the living heck out of me. And he starts telling me this. He says that he was over by his neighbor's house. He was invited over for uh, for supper. And here they are uh, sitting around the table. And the topic of ghosts came into play for one reason or another. I believe it was because the dog was acting a little bit uh, jumpy. And uh, my cousin is a diehard skeptic with a capital S, uh, even to the point of being cynical. And uh, he grew up, you know, a tough greaser on the south side of Chicago. He was one of my, you know, one of the guys I looked up to. He was a real tough critter and nice guy, but tough. You know, he had hot cars. Yeah, he would never fall for anything like ghosts or any of that garbage. Nah, that stuff's nonsense. Well, he's sitting around, they're all talking. And uh, the gentleman living there, he says, oh, no, something happens. There's something in this house. And he starts telling them the stories, telling them how when they moved in, certain things were were taking place. And, and he says, oh, really? Like what? He goes, well, we moved in, and all of a sudden, every night, we were hearing uh, what it would sound like is the windows breaking. And he says, you got to be kidding. He goes, no, it sounded like the windows were cracking. The doorbell would ring on and off by itself. And, and he says, one night, um, the old antique um, sewing machine, the pedals started to take off by itself. And he got up and he stopped mm-hmm. them and he went back to bed. And the darn thing started taking off again, but faster. He got up and he put something on there to stop it from moving. He ran into the house. He ran back in the room. He covered himself up with the blankets. And he says, I'm tired of this. Now stop it. All of a sudden, all the sounds in the house stopped. And a wind comes gushing into the room, lifts up all the covers, but it ruffles his um, pajamas, actually affecting his pajamas. And his hair, his, his wife said, was standing right on end. And it was just blowing him around. Scared him to no end, but it didn't stop. Soon thereafter, a couple nights after that, they heard what sounded like a, a kid running around with a picket fence. Uh, with a, a stick hitting a picket fence. They had an enclosed porch. And they walked out. He opens the door, looks out onto this porch, and there's a stick in midair flying around the room. And it's going against the wood, just flying around the room. Um, he had a whole... Oh, yeah, this thing went on. That and... and, and all of a sudden, the dog started to act up while he's telling the story. And he gets up, and he looks, and he goes, there it is. My cousin gets up, and he looks down the hallway, and the dog just hides underneath, further back under the table, and starts yiping. Uh, then it gets brave, and it goes after it. He chased this, what appears to be a the bust, like from the torso up to the head of an apparition. It follows it up the stairs, and as it turns the stairs, they're watching this thing. They go up there and look. As the thing turns around the stairs, it disappears. 
My cousin ran up there to see what was going on. He had no idea where this thing went. So all of a sudden, he comes down and he says, tell me more. He says, well, it has to also do with this old Bible. He takes out his old King James Bible from the 1800s, lays it on the table. He opens it up and he sees that there are bits and pieces of, of um, cloth that would be cut off the death shawl or whatever they call that when someone be, would be yeah. um, wrapped up to die. And it would have, yep. uh, they would have the newspaper clippings on all of this. And f- strangely enough, in there was his wife's aunt's death, uh, information on her death in there. So somehow this person knew the aunt of, of my cousin's wife. Very unusual. And they didn't know these people. They had just moved in. Very unusual. So meanwhile, as they're going through this, living in that house. <laughs> oh no, kid! They're they're going through this stuff. <laughs> meanwhile, a a lamp that was centered right in the middle of a dresser falls upstairs and sounds like it had just shattered. So everybody runs up there. They see that the uh, the the lamp had indeed been placed, not dropped, placed. On the ground, it's not shattered, not damaged in any way. But yet it sounded like it was broken. Very unusual. So when I got down there, he he told me, he says, you know, it all when they moved into the house, they went upstairs, they found this Bible on a bookshelf in the upper, on the second story. And it was up against the wall on the highest level. You had to reach up there to find it, and it was there, and they... They took it down, and there was nothing else on the bookshelf. They took that down, and they put clothes on the shelf temporarily, and they took this Bible, and they put it on top of an old antique chest that was in the center of the room, and it belonged to them. It was filled with all sorts of articles. That night, this is when it all started, right when they moved in. That night, they heard with all this noise on the floor upstairs. So he goes upstairs, opens the door, and right before his very eyes is this trunk moving back and forth, back and forth, all by itself, startling the heck out of him. Uh, the son, there was, there, there was a son and a daughter. The son just found this thing, the, you know, having a haunted house to be so much fun. The daughter, on the other hand, was just petrified. So it was from that day on, all sorts of unusual things took place, and I was able to be a part of this first of my uh, studies, and that took place in, boy, oh boy, I think it was 1972 or 71, (laughs) and it it led up to many different other uh, paranormal and interesting stories. Uh, during that time, this was such a good case. A a a, a film uh, producer had wanted to make a movie out of it. It was just it it led to many many different things. It was a great case, wow. but I had to share wow. that. Well, something you said in, in your story there just prompted me to um, remember a story my grandmother told me. Um, now, my grandmother's mother 
um, they used to call her the Black Widow because um, she, her husband died when they were in their early 20s and she spent the rest of her life, she lived to about 104 years old and eventually died in about 1968. Um, but she was the uh, epitome of a old Victorian lady. She had her hair done up in a big bun with a big black shawl. Uh, I've got photographs of her actually. She was a very nice lady. Um, but my grandmother told me one night, it was about 1967, she was in bed sleeping. Now, now the left hand wall of her bedroom was all one big sliding door. It, it had about four sliding doors in it, but they were all mirrored. Big old sliding doors with an inbuilt uh, closet. As she said, she was asleep one night and she started to feel the bed vibrate. It woke her up. Then the, the, the mirrored door started to vibrate. And these things were really rattling and bang, banging and, and, and the humming. And, and then this huge, massive spider appeared on the bed of, at the end of her bed and started crawling towards her. Now, the spider was about five feet across. Massive thing. Well, she wasn't scared. She didn't feel scared because she didn't feel threatened by the spider. And the spider just said, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And then the spider just crawled off and disappeared. Well, it was about 10 minutes later, the phone rang saying that uh, her mother had just passed away. So, um, and, and my grandmother, she told me this with dead, cold, hard eyes. You know, she, she I know she wasn't making it up, but... Uh, and it's one of the very few things that uh, personal things that my grandmother divulged uh, into my database of knowledge. But yeah, that was um, pretty scary. That would scare the, the hell out of me. Of the cases you received this uh, month, I gave you more than your handful as usual. What seems to be the more common theme as far as sightings these days well the most common thing that i'm getting at the moment is misidentification of um of of images on photographs either they are hoaxes uh or they're just grossly misidentified um I, i've got one i think i sent you the the uh, the findings uh, just today i'm not sure if you've got it yet um basically it was a, a photograph of a thing that's flying it looks like a, a trident of a, of a trident fork you know a three-pronged fork it just looked like the head of that brilliant white at night underneath some orange lit clouds and uh, I decided to have a look at the photograph in detail and I went to the property section uh, which you can do uh, any investigator will be able to do that is just click on the um, uh, right click on the picture and you go to the bottom of the the, the uh, panel and it says properties click on that and then you've got uh, all kinds of information comes up about the, the photograph and um, what that photograph showed and what the properties were telling me were two different things so what I decided to do was reverse the colors on the picture itself and lo and behold it looks like it was taken in on a beautiful sunny day with nice blue skies and little wispy clouds and uh, that white object is now black and it looks like a bird so um, you know it, it seems to me that that particular picture was probably manipulated in such a way to make it look more than what it was and uh, then it was submitted as a um, as a possible UFO. So uh, I mean, it's that kind of stuff. It's misinterpretation of images or manipulation of images to make them look like what they're not. We always ask people, "Did you see this? Was it there?" 
and many a time, unfortunately, they'll say, no, it was just in the picture after I took it. That isn't really what we want to hear. That isn't what we want to, <laughs> that doesn't hold up exactly. too well. And when you press them, or those that tend to lie and say, oh, no, I saw it. Oh, really? Did you really? Okay, well, I didn't see it, but it appeared there on the camera. Could you, did you, can you bring me your camera? Many a time, I don't know how many a time, I found chips, I found particles of dust, large particles of dust, uh, etc. on the lens that once you take a picture thereafter, or you, you review pictures thereafter, they are, those images that they're so mesmerized by are actually there. Now keep in mind, folks, what we're not saying is that all UFO photos are fakes, fakes or hoax. Oh, no, no, no. What we're trying to do is ask people to be far more critical on reviewing what they're doing on their, on their photos and to realize when they're taking photos to take pictures of things that you see. Okay. Now, obviously, if you're having things move past um, on a very on a very fast pace, quicker than your eye can say dilate at, then a, a camera can pick up things. Uh, I have a photograph of a similar scenario, strangely enough, also looking like a trident, but it was taken during the day and it has colorations. And the I know the area quite well, and I am confused as to what it actually is. Personally, I, I feel it's some type of kite, but I just don't know. Um, the other thing is that very type of image, um, I had two or three other reports come in independently speaking of something similar. So I don't know. Uh, though, when you have people send you a photo, it's, only, it's, it's been solarized, it's been flipped, it's been who knows what. Yeah. You, have, you don't even know what you're dealing with. What we want is basic information as you'd recorded it, as it's been laid down in the photograph. No enhancements, no alterations. Uh, the other thing is when we take photos or we ask you to take photos, you don't have to get real close with the uh, image. You don't have to go 150 times digital magnification. We don't care about that. We can magnify. Give us a good photo. Uh, if you want to go and magnify it only to the point that it is non-digitized, you know, four times uh, optical zoom, something like that. But yeah. don't go beyond that because then it's just too, it, it just loses too much. And we have no idea what we're dealing with there. Uh, detail is lost also in the picture. If you zoom in on an object, you're losing the periphery. You're losing the perspective, uh, how tall the trees are, um, where the tower is, you know, the size of the houses compared to the size of the object. Um, once you take all those peripheral items out of the picture, you then have lost the perspective of the, the, the object that you take the picture of so yes a, a nice wide angled picture is what you need no doubt Des, we've had um, some interesting talk about pictures photos where are we going today with this you know we i i keep hearing 
from people. But what does this all mean? Where does all this, where is this data taking us? Um, I was talking to the past state director, Dave Marler, who has one of the best collections of um, historical uh, UFO information. Back in the day when newspapers would actually print the truth, they would actually tell you that these things oh. are going on. <laughs> Hard to believe. Shock horror. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, these people would actually step forward before the age of ridicule and sarcasm and having their, their windows knocked out or uh, losing their jobs or uh, one thing or another. As one gentleman told me as a trucker, uh, he had lost his job after he posted um, in his, his book, his log, the sighting that he and six other drivers uh, had in Ohio some very remarkable sighting, an object the size, as he says, Soldier Field come as big as Soldier Field, and it comes zooming past and pushed our co- all our trucks over to where we're on only on one set of the wheels, scared the hell out of us. Then ripping after it in, um, you know, uh, with afterburners, four F-16s flying low and hot. Um, Jeez. So he, yeah, he, he posted this. This happened in 2002, and he lost his uh, job right after that. Um, and one of the other truckers, he decided to stay at the truck stop where they were at and uh, kill off a fifth of uh, old turkey or something like that. I can but, see it uh, now. I can, I can see it now. Now, Sam, as soon as the, the official disclosure day comes and, and and everybody says, oh, yeah, actually there is, they're out there and they've been watching us, they've been here for quite a while, I can see the courts are going to be filled with suits, suits and uh, all kinds of stuff with people having the, they lost their jobs over the years because of, uh, you know, they saw something strange. So now they're going to say, hey, told you so, see you in court. Yeah, we had another problem, that being the psychological issue had a case back in 2000. A gentleman had seen multiple crafts over his uh, parents' farm area, his farm at the field. Um, And uh, the funny thing about it was a few police officers also made reports. Many people seen it. It was in the newspaper. Yet, he was taken and stuck in Elgin Mental Hospital. I wonder how many people have been stuck away so conveniently because they told a you know disenchanted uh, uh, either employer, family member, etc., uh, somebody over them that had power enough or ability to enough to sway somebody, usually two family members and a doctor, to have you socked away, <laughs> reevaluated, and socked away for who knows how long. And and you know, you know in, a, in an instant like that, there's probably some other. Um, reasoning behind it some underlying current say for instance an inheritance or one thing or another that's what i was gonna say the money mm-hmm. root of all evil yep so um i was gonna ask you about um shelly i haven't heard much uh, recently uh, anything happening over on her neck of the woods yes uh she called was it yesterday or two days ago and she had mentioned that the uh, Squatch were active out there, and um, she heard the chimes. She has wind chimes outside, and she heard them ringing and ringing, and she, she got to the door, and she started yelling to them, 
I hear you, I hear you, you know, and and it's just going on and on. So she walked outside, and she could see the silhouette uh, of one of them holding up the very chimes, the the uh, wind chimes over its head. And while it did that, there was a reflection of light that cast upon its face. And she says she was able to see its face, except for its eyes. And it yeah. says, you know, very, very hairy, but the face was human-like. Um, this woman, mm-hmm. I don't know how she was able to do it. it uh, that would scare the hell out of me. I'm sorry. As as so accustomed to this weird stuff, I still, you know, I still get the shivers and um, push Julie in front of me if there's a UFO sighting and like, is that what I see? It's like, take a peek again. Is that really there? You know, but uh, it's the truth. I, I don't know how many times I would hear something down the stairs and say, Julie, I'd wake her up because she, she can't hear very well out of one ear, so I'd have to wake her up to talking to her other ear, you know, I think there's something downstairs, you better look. <laughs> so she, yeah. she'd get up, grab the cat, hold the cat in front of her, I'd hold the cat, I'd hold her in front of me, and we'd walk down the steps. So the cat would be the <laughs> the defense mechanism there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they can be pretty vicious, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he would just lick you to death. He had he had all of back claws. That's all he had. That bad breath. Yeah. My God, what is with that? A cat's breath is almost as bad as a dog's, you know? Well, no, normally if a cat's got bad breath, I think it's down to the fact it's got problem with its teeth. Well, so, mine died of a know, tumor on it its was... leg. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Poor little guy. In fact, it's uh, one year this um, past month that he, he went... And I tell you, I, I miss that little guy, something severe. He was just the nicest little guy. He he had his own encounters with UFOs. Um, back in 2000, I don't know if I ever told you about this. It was in 2000, mm-hmm. June of 2000, I believe is what it was. Uh, June 6th or June 5th. It was early in the morning. We were coming back. There was a light uh, mist outside. Got in the house about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he is screaming and running up and down the steps. The cat was able to say out, but never enunciate or pronunciated the T. He used to freak people out all the time. So he <laughs> he's running up there, he jumps on the bed, and he's going, out, out. And I'm like, oh, hell, what's going on here? I'm in bed. I'm tired. All of a sudden, I feel this resonating tone, and I'm like, whoa. I have a feeling I know what this is. And he is going crazy up and down and up and down the stairs. And he wants me to take a look. Outside means out means to open. He would stand in front of the refrigerator and say out. It would be anything that he'd want open, he'd say out. And But this time he got that T down to almost to the point where he was making sure he had that T right out. (laughs) You know, and it was the damnedest thing. If, if you'd see it, you'd, you'd say, I just don't believe this. That's what everybody used to say. I don't believe your cat just said out. I go, stick around. He says a few more. Uh, he had, I think he had three <laughs> words, three or four words down. I was trying to teach him to say some more interesting things, but he had more colorful out, words. Out. The colorful words. Yeah, that's when I was 
a couple of them. He said mom and he said hi. That was it. Um, but it, it always tattletale on me too. He, that's he'd come up with other things. He'd use sign language for that. But um, sure enough, we had something going on out there. Uh, the next morning, they had reports of the large triangles down the street in Frankfurt and Lamont. Some guys I know seen it right down the road from where we were at. And we had crop glyphs, a.k.a. crop circles, uh, in the, in the yeah. wheat field right at the end of the, the block. And, it, and it's a big wheat field. Um, Julie gets up, goes out in the morning, gets some groceries, comes back and says, Sam, get out there. You've got crop circles out there, whatever you call those things. I, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, a buddy of mine calls me and he says, get your butt out of bed. There's some crop circles down the street. You got to see this stuff. I get up, I go down there. It was like you wouldn't believe. It was gorgeous. It was multi-levels of woven um, wheat and the not the nodes just bent absolutely perfect nothing broken in the center these tufts that were all swirled together and all laying just absolutely perfect but the 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 actual way it looked was like a topography it looked like a jello mold like it would it wouldn't make sense unless you were looking for up, you know, up above, down right. at it. From height. Yes. And uh, at that time, the people who I had called that would usually do something for us were totally unavailable. I'm like, what is going on? Meanwhile, I decided to get some samples and take them back home. As soon as I get them home, I lay them on the table in the bag. My cat gets into the bag. I come in there, and he chomped down every bit of those samples. Yeah, and I was like, what's going to happen now when I go in his little box, when I have things glowing or what? And he's there, you know, he's having a good time just eating this stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, I got to get back there and get more. But it was a, a very interesting time, and the cat, oh, he was just, just a character. I miss him so. I don't know if that was responsible for his death in any way, but um, he did glow for a while. Well, well, I was going to say I can imagine the um, the report come back from the from the lab saying, you know, uh, we got a theory is that uh, your little space alien friends are actually feline in origin. <laughs> yeah, he's sampling cat saliva. <laughs> what? Yeah, can you imagine that? It was a interesting time, and it seemed from that day on there were more and more interesting cases showing up with uh, crop glyphs for a while. We had, I think the next year, it was around that same time we had uh, unusual crop glyphs uh, in the Illinois area. So, I mean, people think of England, your home, your old stomping yeah. grounds for crop circles and glyphs. and. You know, they're here. They're everywhere. Um, yeah, you know uh, what I was going to uh, probably do this year, coming up this uh, next year, 2012, um, is uh, finally uh, bite the bullet and go out and get one of those butt fans and uh, have that in the back of my truck. And um, whenever any of these um, 
crop circles or uh, glyphs turn up, all I have to do is just don my butt fan, go flying and take some pictures of it. And then uh, it, it's the ultimate portable airplane. <laughs> yeah, you said they're not too expensive too, right? Uh, you can pick them up for about four or $5,000 um, for a reasonable one, uh, maybe secondhand. Brand new, they cost about six or 7000 But yeah, they, you know, you don't need a license to fly them. You don't need a runway. You don't need a hangar. You just throw them in your truck and go drive somewhere and they think, oh, I'll go fly here. As long as you're not in controlled airspace, then you're fine, you know. Um, so it, it would be a great tool to have as far as uh, research and uh, taking aerial photography of uh, potential uh, landing sites or crop circles. I think that'd be great. Um, we need more pilots in our group. We need the other thing is we're talking forensic. Really, what it boils down to, I was I was talking to Dave Marler, the uh, past state director. Uh, you know, we need to be proactive instead of forensic. We're always getting stuff after the fact. It would be great if we were if we had enough bodies in the field, enough equipment, and enough money to just find active locations where there. Are higher incidents where your odds are greater, calculate it out by looking at the um, case studies, and we can do that, and just get out there in the field, set up and start recording live streams. If we do that, we are dealing, we have a greater control of the evidence, we know the quality of it, evidence, and that, in turn, is just going to increase the uh, quality of our understanding of the phenomenon. All right, that was Des Whiston. Thanks for calling in, Des. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms, and with us right now we have Michael Clean, and Mike has a guest with him too. How you doing, Mike? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on as always. Yeah, we got a very special guest today. It's Richard Weiss, uh, and he is actually the owner of the Bowen Building at uh, Peoria State Hospital. So thank you, Richard, for coming on with us and, uh, and talking a little bit about that. Well, it's my pleasure. Well, I'd like to start out basically by asking you uh, how you got involved with this building. And then I know a lot of our listeners out there might not be familiar with Peoria State Hospital, so we're going to talk about that. But first, I think we should know how you came to own the building, how you became interested in it, and maybe a little bit about your own background. Okay. Um, my background is in property management. And we, um, when I worked for that company, we used to 
look for older hotels and such like that to make into senior housing for lower income, which had subsidies and things. So one evening I was looking on the internet for possible locations that we might um, build another project or rehab a project, and I came across an ad on eBay that had a very nice looking old building that happened to be part of the Peoria State Hospital. And I got to reading the ad and it said, um, one of the things that it mentioned in the ad was that you could use the limestone off of it and build something else. Hmm. Well, that kind of upset me a little bit when I first seen it because the building was just an architectural dream to me. It's just beautiful. So I contacted the owner off the eBay there and I called him, drove up about three days later and I was driving up Cypher Road, which runs right beside the building, and when you pop up that hill, I saw the building, and I knew that I had to do something to make sure that that was saved. So the, so the owner I, was just looking to get rid of it. Just going to sell it for parts, basically, huh? Right. He was looking for anybody to buy it, either to tear it down or rehab it or whatever. Um, and when you, I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of the building, but the building is just tremendous. It would be a shame to see it go down. Oh yes, I, I've been there a number of times, and I always thought it was beautiful. Uh, and there, there were other buildings around it, but I, I think that these, those were torn down recently. Right. I, matter of fact, I own those also. At the oh. Time. I went. I, I continued to. I um, contact the guy, and it just so happens the way tax credits and things work. I did. We didn't purchase this building with the company that I worked for because Illinois doesn't have a state tax credit for historical restoration so the huh. numbers didn't work as good so I decided to help the gentleman that owned it to see if I could get him some grants or something to maybe save it and he's a very um, busy older gentleman that does um, these Morton buildings you know the metal buildings and such Right. so he was never around I couldn't get information from him so I decided to set up a non-profit and purchase the building myself so in 2007, I did that, and we actually got our approval from the IRS to be a 501c3 at the beginning of 08, and then in July of 08, we actually purchased the building. So what was the initial response? I mean, where did you even start in, in soliciting donations? Um, soliciting donations? Well, we just we put up a, a website, and then we right after I bought it in July, we set up a fundraiser for September of 08, and we just invited, you know, the community and everything. We ended up having 5,000 people show up. Wow. Well, that's um, pretty good. Yeah, we had a pretty good turnout. Now, we didn't make a lot of money because we didn't charge for a lot of stuff because most of it was outside. The village had only allowed us to go into about six rooms right at the very front of the building, and we had some paranormal guests and some guests that used to work at the hospital. I invited anybody that had previously worked in the hospital to come and be interviewed. We were also, um, we had another gentleman that was helping me that was um, into the paranormal and into shooting movies and stuff, so we interviewed all these people that had worked in the hospital. And we even had one lady that was 92 years old that was just a dream. She was sharper than I am by a mile. <laughs> and um, we sat and interviewed these people for like seven hours and got their thoughts and the interest in the hospital and goods and bads and whatever. And the funny thing is, when they place those, that tape back, they caught over 400 EDPs wow. on the recordings while they were doing these interviews with the people that used to work at the hospital. Hmm. So 
So it was that was my first delve into the paranormal part of it. Did you know you were buying a uh, haunted building when you bought it? Well, I found that out. I, when I first saw this, it was 2005 when I first came across the building on eBay. Um, and I didn't actually purchase it until 2008. And I'm probably the most hugest skeptic there is. I, You know, everything that happens to me, like door slamming and stuff like that, is the wind because you have no windows and the wind blowing 50 miles out. Now, I've had a few little things, like I catch things out of the corner of my eyes once in a while and stuff, but I've never had that real experience that'll get me over the edge to full-blown belief. Uh-oh. But there's just too many things happen there at this building to different people that there isn't something going on. There's There's got to be something going on. It just hasn't happened to me yet. You'll have your day, and when it does, it's going to be one of those big ones, probably. I'm still waiting for mine. Yeah, I just, like I said, I see things out of the corner of my eye, stuff like that, but just nothing that I can put my hands on. Now, we did have a gentleman, when we did that first fundraiser, we had a gentleman from Chicago that was part of a golf band or a vampire band or whatever. Actually, they shot a music video at the building. But he took a picture from the back, and it was during the middle of the day. And I had built walls inside because the city line allowed us to go to six rooms. So I partitioned off where nobody could go to the stairs or anything. And in the second-story window, you can see a nurse in the second-story window as plain as day. Wow. I see that. That's incredible to me. So you own this building, and yet the city told you where you could go in it. And right. How does how does due that to work? The, well, due to the way it's been, uh, kids have vandalized it, and uh-huh. the weather has taken its toll on it and stuff, so it's not up to code. So when you put a building back online, you're supposed to bring it back up to code before you allow the public into it. And that could be quite now, expensive. Right. right. You're ta- depending on what your final end goal is would determine how much you're going to spend obviously now we were just opening it for paranormal tours and historic tours so we weren't bringing it up to what we what our final goal was Well, a building like that was never up to current code to start with so it's not as if you're no it never was (laughs) right but anyway we fought constantly with the city we they asked us to do some things such as put in handrails for the stairs which needed to be done we um smoke detectors fire alarms handrails for the stairs we spent about 20 grand and for that we were supposed to get a year's occupancy so we could do tours and bring in more money so we could start work on the roof well Mm -hmm. once we did all that the city gave us a 30-day occupancy 30 days. So it's been a fight with the, <laughs> yeah, it's been a fight back and forth with the board ever since. In the meantime, since I bought the property across the street, they, um, they posted those right after I bought properties in July and October, they posted my buildings across the street, and then four months later, they tore them down. So it then, uh, and then they tried to charge me 200000 for tearing down the buildings I didn't want tore down. So oh, there you go. <laughs> it's been a constant battle, and... Uh, do you do you feel like I don't know if you can answer this question or not, sure. but do you feel like the city was hostile to you doing anything with the building? Um, the previous administration, definitely. Um, since that time, we've had a new mayor come on board who supports our efforts to um, rehab this building, but there's still some resistance with the board. They want guarantees that we can't necessarily provide. Like, they want, if they provide, they have um, a TIF fund. This is in a TIF district. They have mm-hmm. money set aside. they got a million three just sitting there that they're dying to spend, but they don't want to help us abate the building. 
at one time. Now, I did get a, I did have a meeting with them last night, and they're willing to sit down with us in January to see if they'll do that. But they keep bringing up they want to be in first position. Well, there's a mortgage on it who has the first position. So <laughs> Absolutely. No mortgage company. Yeah, no mortgage company is going to give up their first position rights, and that seems to be a stickler with them when they're using tax money that we'd already paid in, you know, to help us, and they'll recoup it ten times over when we do the improvements to the building. So it's just a sticky situation, and I'm not sure how it's going to end yet. But the the public, when you first did this, it's it sounds like the response was a little overwhelming. Did you ever feel oh, yeah. like did, did you feel like maybe you'd taken on more than you could handle? Um, I didn't the first year or so, but now we're talking three years in, and it about broke me because I'm not getting a lot of donations because nobody sees it actually ever getting open again until we can get it abated. So people are leery. Plus, the economy went to crap, you know, in the last few yeah. years also. Are you allowed to have so, people in there now, or is it you can't? No, I'm not even allowed in the building myself. That's insane. Right. The mayor, the old mayor, called the Department of Public Health and the EPA. They both came down and did an inspection. The EPA said, you haven't done anything wrong. We see no problems. You're fine. The guy from the Department of Public Health goes and makes a phone call after he went in and looked around forever, then puts on his suit and goes back in and comes out and acts like we've committed a crime and so then I was in the middle of a $200,000 lawsuit with the state of Illinois. What you're doing yeah, you should, is... A, you should put a sign on the entrance saying this is the new city hall because it used to be a madhouse. <laughs> uh, we've talked about putting a city hall in the building because it is this building. If you look at Bartonville, Illinois, on the Internet or something, this building's on their city emblem. Well, can't you demand they take it off the emblem, play hardball back? I could, <laughs> but... But I don't think they would have to since they're not making money on the emblem. Yeah, I just I mean give them a hard time. If they were selling <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't, I'm trying to get an open communication with them right now, <laughs> yeah. so I don't want to go that route. Yeah. But if, if we don't get something going here very soon, I'm going to have to try to play hardball. But So, so you've got this building which you want to restore, and you, you can't let anyone in it, or you... There's no way for you to do any fundraisers then, right? The only fundraising we can do is outside or at other venues, you know, like maybe the Civic Center well, or something like that. That's absolutely ridiculous. It is, but that's that's where we we stay. And in October this year, we we did um, ghost hunting on the grounds outside at night, and we brought in around $5,000, which is pretty good. That allowed us to take the next step and do the Department of Public Health got involved. We have to do what's called an asbestos abatement plan prior to taking bids for abatement. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just a way for the state to get extra money. So we ha we've got the money to do that now. So then we can go, once that's completed, we can do bids again, see if the city will work with us more on the actual abatement. Mm. That sounds like a no-win situation at the moment for you. It has been. It has. It's about killed me. I think I've aged 10 years in the last three with no problem whatsoever. I mean, it just, it, it's broke me. I'm doing very well and had quite a bit of money in the bank when I first bought this, but I'm down to zero. Matter of fact, I sold my 52 Chevy truck to pay the taxes this year on the building. To get that, that's terrible. Years. You shouldn't even have to pay taxes. If you're not allowed to use the building or do anything, they shouldn't be able uh, to charge you taxes. Well, matter of fact, they raised them 40% this last year, what? which makes absolutely no sense at all. So do you do you feel like now you're just committed to this place? I mean, you, you see, it seems like you're very passionate about it. 
Oh, I yeah. am. I've, I've promised a lot of people, and I'm going to go until I can't go in, or we get it going, you know, one or the other, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm I'm about, uh, this is probably my last year, 2012, if I don't get something done. I mean, if the city won't help us with TIF fund, probably this building will never be renovated. Mm. There, it just, it's going to take too much, and no um, public developer or individual is going to take that on, even though the potential for income down the road is tremendous. Right. Um, I mean, this thing could pay for itself 20 times over within the first 10 years' time. Does the uh, town just want it ripped door. down, do you think? I mean, they just want it torn down? They all say they don't, and the support from... I, I would say there's probably, out of a town of 6,000, there's probably 50 people that would like to see it gone. Other than that, everybody else wants to see it either rehabbed or least left like it is. But yet they got mm-hmm. your hands tied and they won't let you do anything. That doesn't right. make sense right. there. Right. Before we go any further, for our listeners sure. who aren't familiar with the building, can you tell us a little bit about the general history of it? Oh, uh, boy. Okay. It was first built. Well, the building that I own is just one of many that were part of the Peoria State Hospital. It was originally called the Illinois Asylum for the Incurable Insane. <laughs> There's a name. In 19, yeah. <laughs> and we, matter of fact, there's a, a cover that we got off my other property that's got I-A-I-I on it that we attached to the front of our building because we like that name that it brings a, a darkness to it, you know. Incurable, mm-hmm. insane, really kind of pops when you want to do um, either paranormal theme or anything like well, that. Well, for paranormal, and that's gold. More, oh, yeah, yeah. So we wanted to keep that theme. And then I'm doing a new website that's, more based on that thing than Peoria State Hospital. But anyway, it opened in 1902, and our building was the main building. It was actually built to be a, well, I can go backwards here a little bit. They originally built a building that was under the Kirkbride plan. That was just one huge building with a bunch of wings off of it. But when they got ready to open it, there's several theories. There are, there's two theories. One was either it was built over a mine shaft that caused it to crumble and crack. The other was poor workmanship and theft of funds, so they put inferior materials in it. I'm sure it was a little bit of both. The governor came down and inspected it and said, tear this down, we're going to build something else. And they built the project under the cottage plan, which has several separate buildings and stuff. So that's why the Bowen was built then, with some of the materials that were used in the original build. It was completed in 1902. They brought in the first patients in 1902. And the, the Bowen building was originally built to be the nurses' quarters. But when they first opened, several of the cottages weren't done, so they moved 120 women patients in with the nurses in the Bowen building. Once the cottages were complete, then they moved those patients into the individual cottages. The man that was over the hospital at that time was a revolutionary in the mental health field. His name was George Zeller, very well known not only nationwide but worldwide as the man that brought mental health out of the dark ages. He's the first gentleman to um, create the eight-hour workday. He put women on men's wards. He had a system of no restraint. He pulled all the bars off the windows. He took all the locks off the doors. He did not allow patients to be strapped down. He, this was unheard of in the United States at that time, and it became well-known all over the world. I mean, his his dreams, and he, he treated people, these people, like they were people rather than animals or criminals. And so that was just unheard of at that time, the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in those and days, then, didn't they just strap everybody down pretty much? And that was it. 
pretty much. Or if you were a family, you put them in the attic or the basement so <laughs> nobody could see them. That's, and that happened a lot. We have pictures where they had um, little girls um, tied to the bed, you know, wow. stuff like that. It, it was just unbelievable. Or they went to almshouses or poor farms. We had a, one of our most famous patients was a, a young or a young girl named Rhoda Deary. She wasn't young by the time she got to us, but she went. She was supposedly schizophrenic, or if you believe the other things, she was um, had a hex put on her by her lover's mother, and caused her to go crazy. They put her in an almshouse. She lived in a box bed for 40 years, where she didn't even get out of the bed. Wow. Her legs came drawn up to her chest. She clawed out her own eyes. She busted out her own teeth. She lived in that bed or that box for four years. Basically, they just put straw in it, and then it had slats in it where the excrement went through. She came to the um, hospital, um, I'm not sure what year, I think like 1906, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the first time she got a clean bed and everything, and she hopped around on the floor like a little frog because her, you know, she looked like a concentration camp victim. But her legs were drawn up from being in that box for so long. Wow. Well, one of the most famous ghost stories there, of course, is the story of Old Book, where there was a um, a, a man who was a patient there, right, who um, was employed digging graves uh, for the other patients. And then, of course, when he died, everybody turned out for his funeral, and supposedly they saw him mourning at his own funeral. And uh, George Zeller wrote about that in, in a book that he published about it. And aside from that particular ghost story, have you heard about I- any other sightings or like what kinds of things do people say they experience there? Um, we have several people that seen a little girl on the first, this is back when we were open and doing tours, a little girl on the first floor singing and dancing. And we've caught recordings of it on numerous occasions. Um, there's also a girl that People, when people drive by, they see people in the windows all the time. And there's one that shows up for a lot of people, and they call her Laura. Why they call her Laura, I'm not positive. Um, we had the nurse in the window, was, which was during the middle of the day, which made it really awesome. And it's a real good picture. I would just feel better if I took the picture myself. Right. <laughs> Guys, I mean, he swears, and his kid's actually the one that's seen in, in the photos. So I... I have a lot of credence to it that it's real, but there's always that 1% fraction of doubt in the back of your head, you know, that you decided to take the picture, you know, there's always going to be some doubt. Exactly. But um, that was real good. And we've had people do, like, um, we like to ghost hunt after we do any kind of, um, I don't, but my daughter and several of the volunteers like to ghost hunt after we do any kind of fundraising event or something after everybody goes home. Well, they were doing a ghost box session at the end of one of the buildings, and the box named everybody that was there plus the name Laura. So they talked to her and asked her what she wanted, and it said more toys. So we put balls in there and dolls in through the, you know, into the building, and we leave. We had something on every floor. Well, if you look from the outside into the basement, you can see one of the dolls. Now that we're locked out, you'll look in that and you'll see the doll. One time it's got its arms down. Two days later, you come by and the arms are up. Wow. So it's really kind of neat. It's all the way across the hall where you can't get to. Yeah, it is pretty cool. So things like that. And a lot of people um, have seen different things and got pictures. I don't see a lot in the pictures. I want something as plain as 
how I saw that nurse. I mean, I see a lot of mist in pictures and right. orbs, dust orbs and stuff like that, which I don't consider anything. Yeah, most dust orbs are dust, actually. I'm not, I'm not on yeah, that orb dust. bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, I'm not either. Um, I like people to go ahead and think it is. It's fine with me because... Well, yeah, you need, you need the money for the fine. building. <laughs> That's right. Well, and I can't say without a doubt right. that every one of them is. No. Dust, you know, but... Everyone I've seen has been, at least I think so. But I have seen some pictures with some faces and stuff that are pretty incredible. But again, you have to kind of strain to see it and stuff. Right. But the one with the nurse and that kind of thing, that's the one that has made me a semi-believer, but until I have an actual event myself, I'm still going to be a skeptic. Have you ever set up any uh, surveillance cameras out there, Richard? We have had groups that have set some up, and we've had um, some interesting recordings. I mean, the recordings more than anything. They, right. You, you're you there, and it's, you'll hear things constantly. Um, they have caught stuff on video, but it, most of the time it's like a mist coming across or a big black shadow yeah, coming across. Which I doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Cause, right. No, but it's nothing definitive where you, right. know, where you can see a person kneeling down or something like that. I have not seen anything that definitive yet. Now, I did see one that um, a gentleman named Rob Conover, he's a paranormal investigator from Pekin. Back, way back before I bought the building, he used to go in there in the 80s, and he's got one where you can see a figure get up off of a desk and kind of walk off the screen. I mean, it's just kind of like a, a very faint outline of something, but it was pretty neat. Mm. I kind of liked that one. And then they were just sitting there, and the light came on. But it was one of those screw-in types, you know, not a... Right. You don't have a switch or nothing. But the light just came on all of a sudden, which was kind of weird. But things like that I've seen on videos and stuff. But most of the videos I've seen, I've never seen anything that I would call definitive that I could, couldn't explain or that was so clear that made me an outright belief. You got electricity out oh. there, Richard? Is there still power to the building? I brought power into my building. It's temporary. There's a pole oh, okay. right outside the very front of it. What was the other question? I'm sorry, I missed. I was just going to say that I have all of this extremely high-end infrared video camera equipment. Someday, if I get a chance and I'm out there with you, I'll come out there and we'll we'll put some professional equipment in and see if we can find anything for you. That's fine. We can do it from the windows, but we can't go inside. Yeah, I know. Um, that, but I've had. Well, it's what's funny is I'll I'll be out there. I used to push mow the whole thing, and it's an acre and a half, so it about kill me, you know. But it was 102 degrees one day. I was push mowing. You walk up to the building. You got those holes in the side. It's it's like air conditioning. I mean, it's we had campers that would camp that purposely camped against the building because the cold air coming out got in their tent. Hmm. You know, and they, when the weather was real hot, when we were doing campouts, they enjoyed the cool air coming out. That's what you call paranormal air conditioning. <laughs> I don't know. It's either well, it's very well built for one thing. So it's, and then there's no windows and it. But I don't know how it keeps that cold of air constantly. I mean, I, like I said, it was 102 degrees outside. I was I, I surprised there was any cold air coming out of the, even the air conditioning building when it's that hot. But it, it must be like, all the cold spots in, in there. I don't know. But that building, the limestone is 17 inches thick, and then you got a couple layers of brick on the inside of that in places. Not all of it's that way. Oh, yeah. That's it's quite a bit of an insulator, then. Yeah, it's, it's very well built, even though it's... It's had its issues over the years from vandalism, and different owners have scrapped stuff out of it. A lot of them did more harm than good, 
you know, but it is what it is. Now, are there any stories about the cemeteries, ghost stories that you've heard? Um, most of them, Bookbinder is the main one, which that all took place in the cemetery. Um, right. That's the most famous one. Um, I've had people tell me they've seen things, and we've gotten all kinds of recordings out of the cemetery. We take ghost hunting tours into the cemeteries at night um, during October. That's about the only month we have now. It's almost too cold down in the low 20s. It's kind of not much fun to ghost hunt. <laughs> right. Especially when you can't go in the building. There's cold spots everywhere. <laughs> yeah. If we could go in the building, I'll tell you what, when we were open, even at, we, we had a night that was minus 20, and we had 25 people show up to spend the night. Wow. To pay, pay to spend the night. And all we did was huddle around the heater and let them walk all around the building. And I could not believe they stayed. I mean, they stayed eight hours when it was 20 below. They were yeah. stepped into it a lot more than I was. We had to stay, too, because they were there, but we stayed around the heater, and we still liked the frozen. I bet they found a lot of cold spots that night. Yeah, <laughs> there wasn't anywhere you went that wasn't cold. So if any of the, the listeners want to contact you and donate, um, how could they do that? They can go to our website, which is www.eoria-asylum.com, and there's an area on there that says donate that they can go to. They also can have access. We've got several movies on there. Um, the Bookbinder story, there's a movie been shot on that. Um, there's the music video that Plasmata shot. Oh, there's stuff like when we did a zombie crawl and things that that are on there that they're welcome to look at. Plus, then we've probably got six or 700 pictures from the old hospital and from how the buildings are now on there for anybody to look at and enjoy. Well, great. Well, thank you for joining us. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on and tell us about Peoria State Hospital and the Bowen Building. Well, I appreciate being on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. That was Michael Clean with his special guest, Richard Weiss. If you want to help Richard out with his cause at restoring the Peoria Asylum, go to his website at peoria-asylum.com. Sounds like from what Richard said, he could really use some help. We'll be right back after this commercial. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. All right, we hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We'll be back next week with a whole brand new one-hour show on Friday nights, TheEdgeOnAir.com. That's TheEdgeOnAir.com at 10 o'clock on Friday nights. We'll have a brand new one-hour show also Sunday nights, UFO-Info.com. Every Sunday night, brand new show right here. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in.